Welcome to the Rip Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. And thank you so much for listening. We've now recorded over 25 episodes with some of the best guitarists in the world, and we don't plan on slowing down. We're so stoked that you're enjoying the topics we are covering. Please share us with your friends and give us a tag. You can find me on Instagram at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A.R. Levy. And that's at A.R. Levy U-R-M Audio. That's E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. If you want to give us a review, then we especially love iTunes reviews. We will never charge you for this podcast. All we ask is that you give us a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is one of the most skilled, unique, and incredible guitar player musicians I have ever known or worked with in my entire career. Charles Caswell is a guitar player, songwriter, and producer who's one half of the project Buried Alive. That's Buried, B-R-R-I-E-D with his wife, Kaylee Caswell. And he's played with some of the larger bands in the progressive metal genre. And Charles has sharpened his skills with well over a decade of grinding as a player and a songwriter. And he's gotten props from people like Tom Morello uh, for his unbelievably unique guitar playing. Anyways, I introduce you, Charles Caswell. Charles Caswell, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thank you, A.L. Happy to be here. Nice to see you. Nice to meet you, Charles. Hey, John. How are you doing today? Doing well. It's a sunny day. I'm talking to you, so it's great. Awesome. I miss you, Charles. <laughs> I miss you too, man. Do you still have Blondie? Yeah. She's still alive, believe it or not. That's awesome. She's 10. That was 2013, right? When we worked together. Yeah, 2013. That seems like a long time ago, but at the same time, not that long ago. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't seem like eight years seven years, eight years have gone by. That's craziness. Yeah. And I, I want to say congrats to, you know, nail the mix and riff hard and probably a bunch of other things that I, I missed out on, like kind of grinding on my own with my wife over here, um, that you've accomplished. It's really cool to see what you're contributing to, um, not as well, like the guitarist and music community, as well as the engineering community that, just never had this kind of access to, you know, like the high-end productions to work with and to like train their ears on. I think that's just super cool. It's a really cool service that you've provided. And I don't know, it's just been cool to see you grow in your own way. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. You know, I think interestingly enough, people like you are exactly who would have benefited the most. Cause I remember when you came in to record, like you had recorded versions of your stuff, just like demos. And like you were into mixing, just kind of didn't really know what you were doing or anything, but like you were using recording technology. And that's something that I think your generation of guitar players, maybe people a little bit older, definitely everybody younger have grown up with this technology but I think right around that time period, like 2010 through 2014, people were using it, but didn't know how to use it. And there was no way to learn how to use it. Now things are completely different. But back then it was kind of 
kind of like Wild West almost. Yeah, you've helped change the game for sure. When I graduated high school uh, back in like 2007, I went to school called a school called McNally Smith College of Music. And um, it was right in St. Paul. I spent like 30 grand on one semester and I didn't learn like hardly anything. That's extreme. Yeah. Yeah. I actually went back a second time. I actually failed both times just to be totally upfront. So you spent 60 grand. (laughs) I'm still paying for it. Damn. Had I known what it was going to be like in a few more years, I would have just gotten internet and just used YouTube and trained my ears. That was the main thing. Just like training your ears to be able to hear all these different frequencies stand out was like the thing that I needed, you know, that in time. Did you find as well that with recording, going to recording school, that was never really focused on metal? It was always just recording music. There was never really any end goal. Because it, I went I went between the age of 16 and 18. I recorded something in, uh, I studied something called music technology. And I can't really remember learning anything in that two years that I didn't learn better by just searching the internet. I agree 100%. Same way for me. We we worked on Beatles songs and stuff like that the whole time. There was um, a couple songwriting classes I was interested in taking in the future, but I had to get through these classes at first, which was just not happening. We were learning how to clean a tape machine. We would spend, our first semester was learning how to clean the tape machine, which I don't know if you have a tape machine. I don't, I still don't have a tape machine. I don't plan on getting one. I've never owned one. So just speaking of tape machines, we just did Nail the Mix with Chris Crummett last month so for people listening in the future march 2021 we've been doing nail the mixes since 2015 that was the first time anybody used tape wow. on a nail the mix <laughs> we've been doing it every oh single God. month since 2015 and that's the first time anyone ever used tape just to back up your point yeah kids are paying thousands of dollars to clean a tape machine this is the first time you guys have been with one for years now. That's crazy. That school just like randomly closed very suddenly a couple of years ago. And um, I think people are just using services like Nail the Mix, Riff Hard, which I just looked into recently. It looks really cool as far as like the different guitar workouts and stuff. That's a really cool like angle to look at practicing too. But I, I didn't look in because I'm not a member. So I didn't like try to look into it further. But We can uh, hook you up. So speaking of guitar, one of the things that I remember about working with you was your right hand is goddamn ridiculous. Super, super precise, but also strong, strong AF. It seems to me like you had to do some sort of very, very disciplined practice to get it like that. Like, honestly, Brown is the only other person I know with like a right hand that's that strong. Like, so I'm just curious, like, where did that even come from? Um, just lots of, lots of practice, I guess with, with a metronome, forcing myself to learn kind of crazy stuff, like bleed from a sugar, for example, and just like picking out my favorite pieces of music and just trying to get really good at playing them. Periphery was another band that had some really like, not overly complicated stuff, but real just sounded so good on rhythm that I wanted to try to recreate with my hand. And I mean, if we go even before then, I don't even know. I just played a lot, just played a lot with a metronome and just had the guitar in my hands as much as I could. Did you focus on tone and attack or was it just more like what I'm hearing sounds awesome? Like I hear 
the dudes in Meshuga playing and they sound awesome. I need to recreate that and then just not stopping till you're recreating it. Yeah, I really had no idea how important the right hand was. And I was just I just knew that it was kind of hard picking the right kind of muting with your palm and the right kind of muting with your fretting hand as well. And just keep working on that until it sounds not like shit. <laughs> and just keep <laughs> keep going with that. If it sounds better, then just keep working on that. It's a lot of detail. And that's what a lot of it is. It's just attention to detail. As far as like your rehearsing goes, you want to be engaged with it. You want to be 100% focused on what you're doing and all the details within it. And then if anything starts to sound muddled, that's that's your weakness. And then that's what you want to work on. I took a lesson with uh, Emil Wurstler too, because you recommended him. You, you introduced me to his playing when we were record, recording together. Pretty amazing. Oh my God. Talk about a right hand. It's just insane. And I took lessons from him and he taught me a lot too. And you told me about the stylus pick, which I'm still using as well. So, Oh shit. You use that thing? Yeah. I have to order more. I just wore, I wear them down. I wear, go through about one a week. Do you use that for practice or do you use it for actual playing? Practice. Okay. Good. I actually haven't used a regular guitar pick in a few weeks now. Uh, and I've just been working with a stylus pick and just going through Rhythm playing, leads, all that stuff. Brown, are you familiar with those? I've never seen one. <laughs> You've never seen one, but are you familiar with them? No, I've never even. So is that a round edge on it? Yeah. Okay. So you're that, you see that weird round edge on it, like diamond kind of edge? Yeah, of course. Okay. So that pick is designed to train your control in the right hand, because if you, if you deviate at all, it'll snag the string. It makes you feel like the shittiest guitar player in the world. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to have to order some of these, aren't I? Like, yeah. I've never even heard of it. Three of them for five bucks. Dude, I totally forgot about those. That thing made a huge difference in my life. Yeah, me too. I, I recommend them to all my students. I re I'm like, get a stylus pick, get Guitar Pro, learn how to use Speed Trainer in Guitar Pro, and like have fun. Don't spend a lot of money on gear. If anything, go down to like a part-time job, spend less money on gear and give yourself more time to get better at your instrument. But the stylus pick has been one huge contributing factor in my right hand as a blade, especially with alternate picking. I'm just like, just garbage at that. I'm just trying to get better. <laughs> Have Do you play chords with the stylus pick ever? Everything. Holy shit, really? That's really impressive. I just play everything with it just because it, it helps your picking depth. Like you said, it'll stop. So I just, I don't want to overexert my wrist. And that's helped. I used to have a lot of wrist pain back when we recorded together. I was always dealing with wrist trouble and I have zero wrist issues now. If anything, sometimes my fretting hand gets a little tight from like longer stretches, but that's about it. I'm just kind of like trying to imagine playing really complicated chords and stuff with the stylus pick. So I would use it for exercises and stuff, not for like actual playing uh, and not for like chords. I would use it to like train precision work. And I fucked my arm up lots of times playing too hard. And uh, though I do believe that you need to play hard to sound good, like there's, you have to do it the right way to not hurt yourself. And so uh, the stylus pick was almost like a rehab thing for me to help me get more controlled. Um, and it really, really worked. Um, people fucking hated it. I would recommend it to people. Um, I would only <laughs> recommend it to people who I felt had the discipline to use it because 
like, you know, you get a lot of shitty guitar players when you record for a living. And most of them, if you were to give them something like the stylus pick, they would never use it. Like they wouldn't have the patience or the determination or, you know, they would try to play it. It would snag the strings and be like, fuck this. But uh, I would recommend it to people who I figured would actually benefit from using it. But even out of all those people, very few people actually stuck with it more than like the first two minutes because it's so frustrating to play with. It's extremely frustrating. I had to use it for a solid three months before I could really like play anything I could normally play with a guitar pick. It sucks. But sticking with it was the best thing I could do for myself. And with guitar, it's kind of like golf. I don't know if you play golf at all, but you could. it's like a sport you could do your whole life. You just have the patience and be in it for the long haul. And you might not sound good now, but you've got like a good 40, 50 more years of playing. So just be patient with yourself. And that's what a lot of like, I don't know, people in general aren't super patient with anything. So sticking with something like the stylus pick and feeling like a piece of shit for weeks is not something a lot of people are willing to do. <laughs> no. Well, when you take the long, the long approach, the long and play basically the, the long game, it's a lot easier to handle. Oh, it's four months of pain, but then years of awesomeness. It's hard to wrap your head around that, I think. Um, but I think that it's actually one of the most valuable perspectives you can take on anything. Like with you talking about that, I was immediately thinking about how long it's taken to do stuff like URM or us, you know, getting riff hard going or whatever. Like this shit takes time. It always takes time. People don't have patience. That's the problem. A lot of people just want to see results like immediately. So if you're telling someone to take one step back in order for them to go two to three steps forward, a lot of people would be skeptical just because they don't have patience. Well, yeah, they want a guitar exercise that's going to make them sound like their hero by the end of the day or within <laughs> the first hour. And this one will literally make you feel like a beginner immediately, right out the gate. Can you imagine playing Meshuggah with that pick? <laughs> it only took, what, eight years of me hearing about it, though. <laughs> like I used to just play the first, like, one string. I would just alternate pick with it one string at a time from, like, the low E up to the high E on a little six string with a standard scale length. So I didn't get too crazy until I could finally do that. And then I started working into scales and just implemented it into the rest of my playing. But you're right. Every, like, I've had a, I mean, I don't want to, like, shit on anybody but uh, a lot sometimes I'll have students that expect to like be super super good in one hour of a lesson and it's really um, sad to see because it takes a lot of time like how long have you been playing guitar John? Properly since I was 13 which now makes 22 years but I've had a guitar since I was six years old so I've been I've technically had a guitar now for 29 years and I still suck <laughs> <laughs> Assuming that you're going to say you suck no matter what, how long was it before other people were telling you you didn't suck? Honestly, the first Monuments album. Which was how long into playing? At least 12 years. Yeah, there you go. That's when I found that I could find my feet. You know, when you, uh, you, you know, along the way when you're playing guitar, you have those moments where a light bulb just kind of goes off. And for me, the main light bulb moment was when I 
really started to get into recording myself and listening to the nuances. That was kind of the light bulb moment. And that was a couple of years before that album came out. So yeah, I guess that was kind of when it happened when I thought, all right, okay, yeah, I can actually play something now that I'm happy with, I guess is probably the best way to put it. Because I don't think there's any such thing as a great guitar player because we're constantly learning. Like what Charles said a minute ago about you've got 50 years to learn. You're always learning new things. How long was it for you, Charles, before people started to say that you didn't totally suck? I don't know. I started when I was 11 or 12 and maybe some kids from school thought I was a badass at guitar when I was playing some Green Day covers and stuff. (laughs) But as far as like another like guitar player saying it took a while, you know, probably the same about the same, you know, when I was in the studio with Al, I was kind of shocked that he had me do the recordings because I didn't feel like a very good guitar player then. Um, so maybe that might've been one of my first experiences where I might've actually like somebody that's seen a lot of really good guitar players is wanting me to record the guitars. So I don't know. I think that might've been like the first legitimate moment for me to like make me feel like I'm on the right track, I guess. Just out of curiosity, did you think that, uh, that like you were going to get there and I was going to be like, you can't play on this? (laughs) Well, I thought it was going to be like me doing all the stuff that I wrote and then the other guitar player doing all the stuff that he wrote. And then that was it. But it was not like that. No, no, I didn't think you were going to be like, you suck, sit in the corner. But I (laughs) I didn't realize that I was going to be taking on like the entire thing (laughs) either. That's how that shit works. I mean, Brown, like up until recently, that's what you did with Monuments, right? Yeah. And like generally now it's for the most part, if you wrote it, you played it generally. I mean, once you get to a certain level as a guitar player, I think that if you can record, then it's going to be good. And the person that wrote it generally knows all those little nuances, you know, the the space between the notes. But it dude, it took a long time to get to that point. Oh yeah. You were the only dude who played for a long time. Yeah. The first two albums, basically. Yeah, I mean that's pretty much how it works. Sometimes some guitar players, it's not that they're not good. They just you know, like how some people are good looking, but not photogenic. Uh, it's <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like that. Like they're good, but something about recording them doesn't translate. I've noticed that with some players and then just some people just have it in the hands. They just, when they play, it sounds like the way that the music is supposed to sound. And when you discover that in someone you're recording, why would you not have them do everything? Like you want everything to sound the way it's supposed to sound. So that's a harsh lesson for young bands, I think. It breaks bands up. It like makes friendships like shatter, like it destroys egos. Like it's not psychologically easy for a lot of bands to experience that at the beginning. But what's interesting about it is bands that stay together or, you know, who become veterans, one of two things happen. Either they like, they just get comfortable with it and they just know their roles or they both start to get better to where the other guitar player can also to their end of it. That tends to be the two ways things go, I've noticed. The whole thing is it's got to sound good. And we weren't realizing that. I didn't know shit. None of us did when we got there. And if it doesn't sound good, you have to change it so it does sound good. 
And that's the whole, the whole thing with like recording. It's not about being able to perform it all, all the way through flawlessly in one take. It's about doing what you have to do to make it the best sounding recording possible. And so people, you know, want to listen to it. And that's something that we, we didn't really have that frame of mind yet as far as, you know, production went. Did you find that even if you like weren't totally there yet with like knowing how to produce yourself, do you find that recording yourself helped you get better? Way better. I have to record myself differently than I like practice though, because I'd record in smaller sections because I want to, I don't want to like get cold and while I'm doing like production work and like moving things around, you know, moving the guitars around and then going back and try to give it like, you know, a hundred percent again, I've gotten a lot of injuries that way, trying to like play, you know, 30 seconds of stuff and you're getting kind of tense because you want it to sound good and you're playing hard. And then you stop for five to 10 minutes cooling off and you're like moving your clips around. And then by the time you go back to do another take or work on the next thing, your hands are already cold. So that has contributed a lot to my like joint issues and stuff. So now I record in much smaller pieces so I don't have to worry as much about injury. So I kind of approach recording differently than practice. I'll like practice for a few hours and then do my recording stuff totally separately. But that's, it's helped train your ear a lot for stuff. I haven't actually heard anybody talk about that before. The, uh, recording smaller segments in order to preserve, but like actually thinking about it, that would come up a lot when I was recording other people or myself. Like I remember lots of times people would get frustrated. Like if they recorded something and then you work for a while and then five minutes later you go back to recording them or whatever, like they'd get cold. They wouldn't like that at all. Yeah. It's hard. And then, you know, getting your emotions involved too is not good for anybody. (laughs) So keeping it as like, neutral and like smooth sailing like yeah this is going to take longer because we have to go bit by bit but at the end we know what it's going to sound like and nobody's going to get pissed off or uh feel bad about themselves during the process (laughs) and i guess i'm talking to myself because it's just me recording myself but (laughs) (laughs) and my wife kaylee but you know what i mean i don't there's no frustration there like one thing that i always do when i'm tracking guitars by myself like i actually did it recently for a new song is that I just track the whole song and then worry about the editing later. So then at that point, I'm in the right frame of mind for the recording. You know, I've recorded everything that I need to. And if I need to go back afterwards, then I'll just do it either later after I've warmed up again, or maybe even just the next day when my ears have had a chance to cool down from obviously being blasted by a hundred decibels of noise, white noise for X amount of hours. So is that kind of how you do it now? Whereas before you used to do like part of a riff and then edit it, another part of a riff and then edit it. What I do now exactly is I'll pop up the Tone Forge plugin and I'll record direct in and I'll keep the tuner open in front of me at all times. And I'll make sure that everything I do is perfectly in tune. And then I'll just get all the way through the song. And then the next day or later on, I'll reamp it. And then that that's when my ears have cooled off, like you like you were talking about, and I'll get like the tones that I want. So I'll send it through my pod or maybe I'll use the, the tone forge. It sounds really sick in some applications or my lead tone is a sans amp. I, I just like the way it sounds. The silver front one, right? Yep. Yep. Damn, that's going back some years. I mean, I saw them when I was 
not even 20 years old. <laughs> it's been around and I wish I would have found it sooner. I found it like in 2014 or 15 and same with boom, like these hip hop drums and pro tools. Like I use those now because those are really fun and they've been around for years. They've been around for like forever. <laughs> But I, I don't know. I think it sounds cool. I know it's for a bass. We use it on bass too, but it's just like something about it like really distinguishes the guitar tone away from the other rhythm tonal qualities. And it just kind of helps it pop on its own a little bit. Not letting your ears get fatigued is a huge, huge part of uh, of finding a good tone. I've noticed that the best tones happen very, very quickly. They either happen really, really quickly or they take like 10 days. I've noticed that when tone hunting with guitars, once you start to get past the first 30 minutes, you start to get diminishing returns and shit just starts to get weird just because you start hearing things really, really weird. And um, if you've been playing all day, not only are your hands tired and your ears are tired, but your brain's tired too. You're just not going to make good decisions in my experience. It's a mess. I used to try to play guitar and tone chase at the same time. And you're just like doing too many things at once. Your ears aren't fully engaged in what it actually sounds like. And you're trying to play. I always tell people to reamp and like tone chase with your, with your DI now, because then you can just focus on listening and turning some things and not even really looking at what you're turning and just listening to what the tone is actually doing. But it's, yeah, <laughs> I've I've had ears like I'm sure you guys are the same way your ears are so fatigued you're pushing up frequencies and you don't even hear anything change <laughs> anymore yeah yeah happens every day <laughs> <laughs> push up like 4k all the way up and you're like I don't hear it is Pro Tools broken what's happening but I mix and I do all the production stuff in very bite-sized pieces so I'm not going to mix for longer than an hour I'll even set an alarm and then I'll just leave and go for a walk or practice very quietly or do something else do some other work that kind of like helps you resettle set your ears and set your mindset too um but yeah you get fatigued by the end of the day you you want to be 100% when you do all of this stuff as much as possible, but it's hard to do. I'm sure you guys work some long ass days and it's hard to, you know, be 110% by the end of it. It is. But, uh, one thing that I have developed recently is, uh, knowing what time I'm done working and that helps tremendously. I didn't used to do that when we worked together. I hadn't started doing that yet. I don't work insane hours like that anymore. What I've noticed is I'm a lot more productive, like a lot more effective and a lot more productive because I don't get the same kind of brain fatigue that I used to get just because there's a certain amount of hours that the human brain is good for. And I think that it's obviously different for everybody. You know, some people are just born with like this crazy advantage of never getting tired. Some people will tap out after four hours. For some people, it's eight hours. For other people, it's 12. But I think everybody has an ideal window of productivity and creativity. And you should try to do all your work in that window. And when that time's up, it's up for the day. And that doesn't mean that you should stop being productive or stop trying to get things done. But I think that the stuff that requires you to tap into those mental faculties like recording or mixing or tone chasing or whatever. Don't try those once you're already tapped out because you're just going to make things worse. I did that just a few days ago. I was 
mixing a song and I was like, oh, I'm not really happy with how the vocals are sitting with, with the snare. And then I, I was exhausted and I started mixing it and I made like a way, way worse version of it than I had originally because I was working like on an empty tank and it's just not fun. <laughs> it sucks. I'll, I agree a hundred percent. If you're not exhausted, it's way better. You have way more fun with what you're doing too. I don't think that it's bad work ethic to recognize when you're not doing a good job anymore and like putting it aside because that's, you know, that's just being effective. Um, I, I don't think, I don't think it means like you're lazy or something. Um, just because how many times have you worked past the point of, you know, past that point? And then had to redo something the next day because it, whatever you did sucked, right? Like, I'm sure that's happened. Probably just yesterday, to be honest. I'll probably have to redo <laughs> some stuff later today. Okay, so that's my point. If you're doing that, then what was the point of working all that extra time? If you're just going to end up redoing it. Yep. And you could probably redo it in like a third of the time if you're fresh. Oh, yeah. So you spend like five extra hours trying to do something and it comes out shitty. And then the next day you spend 30 minutes trying to do it and it comes out great. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It's something that I personally need to work on. And I think there's a level of guilt that I, I experience when I'm not working on something. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I think we all get that, don't we? Speaking of which though, my, I'm just trying to find the book that my girlfriend's been trying to drill into my head about this as well. Cause I work exceptionally long hours but it's all about working smarter, not harder, which I think is the name of the book, actually. It's by a woman and her husband owns like a skateboard company where he draws it all on the skateboards. Can't remember the name of the book. So I apologize. I can't remember it. But it's basically what Al's saying, the productive hours of your day. And if you feel like that you're not working hard enough, then just write down what it is that you've done in that time period. And you'll see that you've probably got a lot more done than you think you have. That guilt, though, is real. That guilt is real. The thing is, I think that that guilt's a good thing because we all know people who don't have that, who just don't have that drive to get anything done and just don't really end up doing much. It's just a double-edged sword. It's good to have that guilt. It keeps you going, like keeps you doing what other people won't. But at the same time, it will drive you past the point of quality. So at the same time, you kind of got to know when to tell it to shut the fuck up. Because it's actually hurting instead of helping. It is a good thing, but at some point, you just got to stop and just take a break. You can have too much of a good thing. Exactly. It's like Wolf of Wall Street. I don't know if you've seen that movie. <laughs> yes. Of course. Genius. <laughs> Pick up the phone and start dialing. Are you broke? Are you late on payments? Good. Pick up the phone and start dialing. It's like one of those things where you have like that built-in sense of urgency. You have to get shit done. And... Everybody has to have that reason to do so. But, you know, I just, I feel the guilt. I want to, I also want to like get music done. I feel totally clogged up as far as ideas goes. And I just want to get things finished so I can move on and move on to other, other ideas. So I'm always just trying to get a lot of music out just to, so I can work on more, <laughs> but it's important not to sacrifice the quality of it. How do you organize your days? Because you do so much like between everything with the band and keeping your playing up and students and then all the merch and like, it's so much shit. My wife is a huge help 
with the social media and with the merchandise. And she's even helped uh, write some songs on this new album. So we've been able to write some music together, which has been really fun. And I record her on bass. So she helps take a large portion of like the social media aspect and, and the merchandise aspect away so I can focus more on the production and the performance and stuff. But my day starts off, I ease into it with some mixing and production. And then I practice, I basically rotate from working on vocals to practice and production like throughout the day. So if I just got done mixing, I'm going to take a break from mixing and practice. If I just got done with guitar, I'm going to do a vocal warm up. If I just got done with a vocal warm up, I just keep it on rotation. And I've got a, a whiteboard of all these things that I need to check off my list. I just attack it until I'm tired and then I go to bed and do it again. And it's usually seven days a week. Yeah, we didn't even take Easter off and just till we get things done. Yeah, it's extreme. You said in the uh, in the pre-interview that as hard as you're willing to work is how much you'll get out of it. Exactly. Is that basically the guiding principle here? Yeah, I think so. As much as you're willing to do, you're going to see the result of if I'm willing to practice for six hours or 10 hours a day, that's going to get me that much closer towards my like end result of being just that much better at guitar or getting this riff down or, you know, whatever it may be towards, it's usually towards a creative thing. What do you mean? When I'm practicing or if I'm working on something, it's usually something I've written. It's generally not so much a scale anymore. It's so everything that I do is towards a song that I'm like creating, I guess. Got it. So I guess as far as vocal exercises, I still do like a normal vocal warm up. but when I'm actually doing vocals, it's like a piece that I've written that I'm trying to perfect. So it's goal oriented always seems like. Yep. That's what I, I tell students too. It's like, if you're going to practice something, if you're going to work on hybrid picking, for example, I could give you a million exercises, but it's only going to get you good at these exercises. Whereas if you took the technique of hybrid picking and you wrote something with it, now you're going to get better at hybrid picking and you're going to have something to show for it. So you think that the best way to learn a technique is to actually incorporate it by creating with it? Yeah, 100%. Interesting. So, well, I agree with you, but my curiosity about it is, do you ever encounter people who try to write with a technique before they totally understand it and so never really master it? Or is that okay if what you wrote is cool? At the end of the day, I just want things to sound cool. The thing that I say is if there's any tension or if there's anything like that going on while you're practicing the technique, then stop. And that just shows that your hands aren't ready to play it at that speed and to slow down. But if you don't understand the technique and use it how everybody else is using it, that's kind of like a good thing. Like as long as it sounds cool and your hands don't hurt, that's like my two criteria for it pretty much. You were saying that... uh I guess you could learn, like, for instance, a Rick Graham lick note for note. But by the time you get it up to speed, you just know a Rick Graham lick. Yeah. And I mean, it's a godly lick because Rick is like insane. He's like one of the sickest guitar players I've ever seen. He's just truly like a master. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's and how relaxed he is all the time, too. Like, watch him. He's a prime example of a guitar player. But I'm just saying you can apply what he's doing in your own way. And then that way you have, you're like contributing something along with him at the same time. And you can't ever be him. He's amazing. But no matter what you do, you will never be him. Exactly. We'll never be Rick Graham. We'll never be anybody but you. Yeah, exactly. So you can take the idea and if you love the sound, you can run with it and just do something that, I don't know, 
just express yourself in your own way with the same technique. So you know this, but like you've got a very unique style. Is that something that you consciously have tried to do or is it just you being yourself? It just comes out the way it comes out. Um, I've always wanted to do something weird with guitar. Like I've got a lot of inspiration from like bands like Tony Danza. Justin, like after the burial is they're from where I'm from. So like watching them grow from a local band to like a, a big sign band, like was a lot of inspiration as far as their style goes. Their uniqueness of like using all these crazy down tunings, jumping to eight string guitars. There was a lot of inspiration from that. But I was like, what if you use even less? You know, like you can use a six string guitar. You can pitch shift it down with like a whammy pedal or a bass octaver to make it sound bigger. And that way you don't have to like necessarily get bigger strings and fight with a tuning. So it's just kind of like different, just throwing different ideas out there. And yeah, I did this when we were basically just starting all over with Buried Alive and there was no audience. You know, I was working at that temp agency, so I was just having fun. I was having a lot of fun with like smart harmonies, bass octavers, pitch shifters, and just doing really, really weird stuff that I liked. I think the key words are fun and stuff that you liked. Yeah, exactly. Well, I'm saying that because I think a lot of people don't necessarily take that into consideration. Like when trying to recreate somebody else's stuff, like the Rick Graham licks, they're not thinking necessarily about, am I loving this? They're just trying to learn that lick by this godly ass guitar player. Um, but I feel like I know from stuff I've worked on, anytime that I've gotten a lot better at guitar or wrote something cool or recorded somebody that was really doing something awesome, there was this element of really enjoying what you're doing and it's fun. And that translates in a weird way into the music. Like you can hear it. I agree with that a hundred percent. I was just wondering if Brown, you've noticed that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you notice it straight away. You can notice when something's authentic and Charles brings up the Tony Danza tap dance extravaganza, which are chaos. And you know, the weirdest thing is, is that between albums two and three, it's a completely different guitar player that was responsible for the sound and he definitely got the essence of what the original Tony Danza was. Like, um, you're familiar with the first two Danza records, right, Charles? Yep. I think the guy's name was Lane at the time. And it was crazy and it was crazy unique. And then obviously Josh came in for number three and number four. And the intent was still there. Do you know what I mean? Like, it didn't sound like... Like, you know, when a band loses a primary writing member and it still kind of sounds like that band, but it doesn't... Really, it just—it's like a really high-quality cover band. <laughs> yeah, kind of, that didn't happen with Danza, which says to me that Josh really wanted to do it. Like you can tell, like when someone really wants to do something, or it's in their blood, because that's what they're so into the idea of not necessarily recreating, but taking the essence of what that was and making it their own. I think that that's what you can instantly hear. You can hear when someone lives and breathes that sound. And when they don't, you just get the high quality copycat, which, you know, don't get me wrong, some of those are really good. But unless you're really, really into it, you can just kind of hear it straight away. It, it doesn't have that. I guess wow factor is probably the best way to describe it. It doesn't jump out at you. Like a good guitar player, for example, you know, when you record a good guitar player and it kind of jumps out, we spoke about it earlier. It's kind of the same thing with... The music element too. I wonder how you define the essence of uh, of somebody's sound. 
it's kind of hard to pinpoint, right? Yeah. Like elaborate a little bit more with what you mean. If you were to describe Danza's sound, right? Like say you were going to become the, the new guitar player. How would you describe that in your head? Controlled chaos. <laughs> but where do you go from there? Because that could mean anything. Dissonant, angry, rude as well is probably a word I would use to describe it. Sassy. Yeah, sassy is another <laughs> word. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. No regard for any form of scale. Yeah, it's kind of punk, right? It's just, yeah, it's just like, it, it's almost like that punk rock mentality. It's like yeah. plug into an amp and not give a fuck. <laughs> mm-hmm. But done fuck in a controlled, rules. chaotic way. Yeah. To actually describe the sound, it's difficult because it's abrasive, but not horribly abrasive. It's just angry, but angry has multiple forms. So yeah, it's really difficult to describe that sound. Yeah, you know it when you hear it. Yeah. Charles, what do you think? How would you describe your style? It's hard. Like I've tried to describe it and I don't know what the hell to say. Like outer space balloons popping. <laughs> <laughs> Avant-garde, I think is what I, how I would describe it. That's a good way to put it. Do you listen to avant-garde music? I listen to rap. <laughs> I listen to Kevin Gates and Stitches. And I still listen to Eminem because I love Eminem. But He's sick. that's pretty much it. That and audiobooks. Like when I'm looking for inspiration, it's generally not from musicians. It's generally from like books about inventors or people that really made an impact on the world with their inventions. And just that that mentality of like trying to do something totally new is how I try to approach music. And we're really kind of into into fashion and stuff too. So we watch a lot of like fashion shows and some of the avant-garde clothing and the mentality that these designers have in what they're creating is just like something you can easily apply to music. And you get kind of a, a fresh approach to it than your a standard musician outlook, I guess. Interesting. I kind of write very similar. How so? I can't write without an idea, not necessarily, like basically, uh, I think what Charles is coming at here is trying to describe a situation with music that doesn't have any music. Is that correct? Yeah. Kind of that mentality. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Very, very similar. Like if I don't have a word or a sentence to that I'm trying to describe, I can't write anything. Nothing comes out. So yeah, I mean, like I actually uh, read about Nikola Tesla not too long ago for one song on an album. Oh, cool. It helped inspire loads of different directions that it could go. It's quite interesting that people don't do that more often. It seems like it's a rare, a rarity unless it's someone that works in like the film industry or the game industry. Charles, do you mean that like you'll read stuff, I mean, listen to an audiobook or whatever about a great inventor and get inspired by their work or you're looking at their approach to creating new things and then trying to adapt their approach? Pretty much all of the above, even like Steve Jobs or somebody like that, just how, just the thought process behind it and then what they were able to do, you know, it's just kind of just really inspirational. So how does that practically apply? Like if you're working on something? Well, it kind of makes you realize what humans are capable of doing with their minds. And I just kind of keep that sky's the limit mentality when approaching music and seeing what I come up with pretty much. Does it happen almost automatically now that you've been doing it for a while? Or is it something that you have to sit there and think like, okay, there's like eight options. Uh, I've got this riff. There's like eight options for how I could fuck it up in a good way. 
um, and then go down the list? Or is it more like your brain just starts throwing out crazy shit? It's kind of both. Sometimes my, like, I'll just free write some stuff and other times I'll be like, okay, so I've got this like group of notes that I really like, but I want it to sound like less traditional. So I'll experiment. There's like a list of things that I can do to make it sound like weird, basically, or a little, little avant-garde. Like what? Well, I could pitch shift certain notes. There's certain uh, notes that I could accent with the drums. And while they're being accented with like the kick or the snare, I could, you know, put a two octave whammy and just like have it go up. Not like, not like pedal wise, like expression pedal wise, but just like shoot up with like a, a button. Or I could add just a smart harmony to the whole thing. And then split. I like to split my signal left and right. So I'll have like one harmony go on the left side and then maybe the bass octave on the right side. So it's kind of a really kind of strange sound. Could do it on acoustic, you know, if you wanted to. You could try to do like a weird acoustic version of like a crazy ass dubstep sounding riff. There's just a list of ways where you could, like you said, fuck it up. There's actually uh, another guitar player that I think is probably the most underrated guitar player in prog. His name's Ron Jarzenbeck. Are you familiar? Oh, he's great. No, I'm not familiar. Oh, really? You're about to have a field day after this podcast then. He is along the lines of Danza in many ways because it's just so dissonantly disgusting, but it's done in a really unique way, often thinking about how we can use all 12 notes of the scale kind of like uh, Schoenberg or something like that, but not quite as weird as Schoenberg. And there's a couple of videos of him on YouTube describing how he writes. It's really fascinating, but he has to play a certain note before he can move on to the next one. It's quite an interesting writing style. Yeah, check it out. It's uh, it's very. It sounds kind of similar to how you're writing. So it's quite interesting that you've not heard of him. That's cool. What's the name of his band? Is it just his name or? He was in a band called Spastic Inc. And before that, he was in a band called Watchtower, who were kind of doing kind of along the lines of Meshuggah in terms of the polyrhythms, but not as disgusting at the time. Okay. But he's amazing. He's phenomenal. Watch his playthrough with uh, something called the Serial Mouse. It's fascinating. I'll check that out. The dude is absolutely nuts. Builds his own guitars. (laughs) You know, what's interesting, though, about going down the list of things you could do, that kind of stuff is really, really good for several reasons to have things planned out or to give yourself options. Because even though a lot of the times the best stuff that you'll do comes like through inspiration and just happens in order to get to the point where you can just spit things out, you kind of need to train your brain to go there. And that's where I think a lot of... uh, giving yourself options, doing creative exercises like thought experiments, all those kinds of things. Um, Even if they don't actually yield the best stuff, they don't for me, they might for you. But even if those types of practices don't yield the best results, they have always gotten me to the point where when I'm being creative, the best results come out. I think that whether or not you're using thought experiments um, to write or create, it's very important to do thought experiments just to get your brain in the place where it can create unique shit or next level shit. Yeah. Do you have um, like any creative exercises in riff hard? I guess King of the Riff would follow underneath that, wouldn't it? In a way, we give our students a, a brief to write music to. So that can be anything from something like 
we said to write the next James Bond theme song in February, for example, as a celebration for the, you know, the uh, the movie that didn't come out again. (laughs) 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 Um, But, you know, there's certain elements of that that need to be followed, almost like a set of rules, you know, like the um, 541 chord sequence that appears in pretty much every single Bond theme song. E minor major seven chord that is the James Bond chord and stuff like that. So in a way by, you know, experimenting with putting boundaries on what you're trying to write, it actually stimulates songwriting because it doesn't seem as overwhelming anymore. The options aren't limitless, you know? So I guess it's kind of along those sort of lines. That's really cool. Where we do creative processes in different briefs. And, you know, we've done everything from like describe the word alien through music. We actually did that as well. All the way through to stuff you can only use the scale or you have to use these passing notes in a musical way. The the list is endless. It just uh, depends on what I feel like that month. Cool. <laughs> Basically, what I want to give them. Yeah. The goals to have within the song does stimulate a lot of creativity because it helps you kind of think around how you're going to still fit fit it into this while still being unique to yourself at the same time. You can apply that with like what kind of audience you want to have. Like what audience do you want to dig this song and, you know, what are some of the songs that are popular within this audience? And how do you, you know, fit your music in with this while still sounding unique at the same time is a good creative exercise. You know, whether you're releasing the song or not, it gets you thinking outside of your normal way. So you don't start making the same shit over and over again. I think that the key there is whether you're releasing the song or not. People need to understand that because I think lots of people will think, well, that's contrived. Like, that's not how you should write music. Music should just be, you know, inspired or whatever. But the point isn't to release this music. That's not the point. The point is to just work your brain out. Work out what you, how you like to write, basically. Like, a lot of people just don't know. They just pick up the guitar, play a few chords. They don't really have an end game plan. Yep. And I've said this before. I feel like a lot of people will write and will just go with the first thing that they come up with rather than really, really exploring it or waiting till they're warmed up. They just don't really think about the fact that they don't have to use everything that they write. They can delete things or just not use them. And the way that they write it doesn't have to be the way that it stays. I I think that those next layers of writing don't really pop up for a lot of people. And I actually think it's not natural to do that. I think the most natural thing is to just shit something out and uh, feel good about it and just go with it. I think that actually taking your own stuff apart requires you to force yourself to evolve. And so people need to train themselves, I think, to, to start doing that kind of stuff. It just isn't the most natural thing. And the reason I say that is because it's very, very rare for someone to just randomly be a great writer. Like it doesn't normally happen with people who don't try very hard or don't obsess with it. Like it's just not that common. Like you can find talent among people who don't go all the way, I guess, or go all in. Really, really awesome writers tend to be awesome writers very deliberately. So that means that they had to work at it and they had to get good at editing their own stuff. They had to basically overcome a lot of layers of suck. Those types of exercises help you evolve, which is, uh, I don't know, 
pretty damn important. The attention to detail and the quality of standards and, you know, making sure that your ideas are flushed out 100% still could mean that people will hate the shit out of the song. And that shouldn't take away from you still doing it too. And like, that's, that's another really big thing. It's like, I just want to do, you just want to make the music that you hear in your mind and create it as like true to the original idea as possible. And, you know, people still might not like it, but it's still like, that's what it's like, what you are meant to do anyways. It's like, just, it's got to happen. Well, you can't control how people are going to react. Yeah. That part's not your decision. That's true. Yeah. And the thing is, is say that your natural voice or your, your unique style is something weird. If you try to like tame that just to please other people, there's no guarantee that that's going to work. And we all know plenty of weird ass musicians who have done real well. There's no real rule with this, but it is really, really important for people to understand that there's no guarantee ever that anyone's ever going to like anything that you do. And you can't control other people's reactions to your work. All you can do is do the best job you possibly can. And hopefully they do like it. If not, oh well. Yeah. You got to reward yourself anyways. You know, at the end of the day, if people like this new album or not, I get Chinese food one way or another. And that's all that really matters. <laughs> that actually sounds great. Some Chinese food. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. funny. It's it's funny, actually, because we're talking about there's no guarantee that people would like it. And sometimes I think we just have to take a step back and just feel that people just might not be ready for it yet. And a good example, again, is Meshuggah. Like, they were around since the 80s. I don't really think that a majority of people really cared about them until Bleed came out. I would still consider them very underground up until that point. And, you know, there's loads of bands that I thought should have been way bigger than they were. But again, people weren't ready for another band from the States. Candiria is another good example of that. Um, I remember watching Dillinger Escape Plan and everyone sat down for them when they supported System of a Down. How do you sit down for that band? <laughs> yeah. That's... That seems weird. Wow. Yeah. Cynic was the same way. Yep. Nobody could handle what they were doing when they came out. It just is what it is. Like, you can't control that. I feel like um, if your music hits, resonates with people, that's a not coincidence, but that's luck. It's luck. It's luck. <laughs> Yep. How hard you work is not luck. Uh, networking is not luck. Getting good, that's not luck. All, you know, putting yourself in the situation where luck can occur is not luck. But uh, whether or not you create something and you put it out at the exact right time that the audience is ready for it and it gets distributed through the proper channels at the right time, all that stuff goes right, there's some luck to that. There's no way around that. 100%. You just got to take your shot and take as many shots as you can and hope one of them lands. I'm always trying to just crazy ass guitar videos, but I did one with... I love your guitar videos, by the way. I do too. Thank you. I released a clip that I really liked and it got pretty small engagement for how long I felt like I was practicing that riff. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like I said, there's there's not really any expectations, but I just thought that did pretty pretty poorly but uh we released the same exact clip like a year later and it blew up it got like i don't know seven thousand engagement or seven and seven thousand reactions same exact clip it's just timing you don't want to like plague people with your stuff all the time but you can keep it on circulation and you never know when it just hits at the right time the same 
you know, a year old and it just kind of like gave us maybe five, 10,000 new fans overnight. Same thing. Spin around. Which one was it? Oh, uh, it was this insanity clip from the song called Insanity. And I said, when you skip the tutorial uh, and just posted it, because it almost doesn't even matter what you say when you post videos, like you could say, I uh, pee sitting down and I poop standing up for all <laughs> people care. And as long as it's a cool clip, they're going to. Uh, watch it. But yeah, the first time I posted it, uh, I got maybe 500 reactions. And then uh, the last time I did it, it was like seven or 8,000, I want to say. And literally nothing changed, right? Nothing. Same video. Downloaded it from Dropbox again. I uh, made sure it was the 4K version, put it on YouTube or Facebook, said when you skip the tutorial, because I thought that it was fitting for how silly it is. And just went, went with it, went to the gym afterwards <laughs> and went back and was like, oh, it's doing well. It's interesting, man. That's the perfect example of what I'm talking about. That's so far beyond what you can affect or control. Yeah. I also think another thing that's super important, and I don't think that it's ever possible to 100% achieve this, but it's important to try and get as comfortable as possible with people not reacting or reacting badly. I think anybody who puts their stuff out in public needs to figure out a way to deal with that. Therapy. <laughs> Because if you don't, you just won't put stuff out mm -hmm. and then nothing will go well. The fear of criticism. Yeah. It's natural to not want to be criticized. Even without music, people still get criticized by family members over personal decisions and, you yeah. know, all, all their lives they're criticized and um, it doesn't feel good at all. Um, so uh, what I've learned is this meditation that really helps me. I've taken a lot of therapy and this like meditational thing where you're kind of, you're picturing essentially like you're picturing a river flowing and you picture like logs going down the river and these logs represent a thought, you know, maybe you're focused on whether it be a good thought or a bad thought and you don't want to get the river clogged with these logs. You know, like what happens with you when you stay on like maybe a harsh criticism that day, you're like focusing on that and it's kind of clogging up all these other ideas that are flowing through. So you want to, it's essentially an exercise to help let go of that and let the logs kind of pass through freely. And that helps you focus on the next thing that's ahead, which might be a really good thing. So I've tried to do that every day and it's helped me not focus on the criticism, the fear of this or that, and just kind of like work towards the next thing, the next part of your life, basically. I'm going to have to start doing that. That sounds really, really smart. <laughs> it's so helpful. It seriously yeah. is because you realize how little important like most of this shit is as far as like critiques goes and it, even like just little spats or disagreements you might have it, with people. It's just like it's you just let it go. It helps you let go of stuff like that. And then you're not occupied with it, which frees you up to like for the next thing. You might be distracting yourself from like the most badass guitar riff ever because of this, like whatever it might be. You know what I mean? It just kind of helps yeah. you be ready for something good. This dumbass comment somebody left that you don't even know <laughs> yeah. is distracting yeah. you from creating the best thing you've ever created. Isn't that fucked up? It's probably true for a lot of people. Probably it's happened to me a bunch of times. Yeah. Oh, it's definitely happened to me for sure. It's ruined some of my days. Absolutely. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. I set an alarm on my phone. Uh, I just call it river meditation and 6 p.m. I just like close my eyes and I put myself there. And in just whatever I'm thinking about, I 
picture it as a log and I try to let it pass, even if it's a good idea, you know, you can still acknowledge it and uh, you can, that way it really helps you choose which ideas you want to engage in and bring your attention to. Cause half the time it's shit. That's not even worth another thought. That's a mindfulness meditation. And the idea behind those is to separate yourself from your thoughts. Like you are not your thoughts. Your thoughts are something that you do, but they aren't you. And you can get consumed with them as though they're reality, but they're just thoughts. You know, thoughts lead to things. And so they do matter, but they don't have to matter if you don't want them to. And with mindfulness meditation, uh, you develop the ability to, like you said, let them go, step outside of them. It's important to do because, again, it's not something we're naturally good at. Our natural inclination, for whatever reason, I think we evolved this way because we're evolved to recognize threats. We're not evolved to recognize the good stuff. We're evolved to recognize threats. So be a thousand great comments and 10 bad ones. And those 10 bad ones are going to be what we focus on. You know, we can have an amazing day where we get all this awesome stuff done and then one thing goes wrong. That's what we're focused on. When it's not the big picture and it really doesn't even matter beyond how you're letting it affect you. Yeah. It's good to do these kinds of exercises they, they help. Yeah. It's like an evolutionary trait that we just don't really need anymore because what's the biggest threat you've faced on the internet? There's none. The only, like, I guess there is cancel culture, but that's probably more on what you're saying than <laughs> anything else. But uh, you know what I mean? Like, there's just so many things that we don't need anymore. And especially with emotions, like emotions kind of get in the way of a lot of stuff. And I think they're important to have but to be able to turn them off or to be able to just like be, like you said, be mindful of them and be mindful of those thoughts, but still like draw your attention to what's in front of you is kind of the key, the key to anything, let alone <laughs> like music uh, or creativity, pro productivity. Well, we'll never have complete control. That's the thing. I'm saying this because I, I've heard people criticize mindfulness or thought experiments as uh, not being perfect, like, because some people will sell them as, you know, the path to enlightenment or the path to uh, becoming a perfect human, those kinds of things. And that that's bullshit because you'll never be totally free of your thoughts and you'll, you'll never be able to be totally free of your emotions. But the idea isn't to be totally free of them or to become some perfect human. It's just to be better about it. Like if, Something, if a bad thought is going to right now ruin a hundred percent of your day, maybe you can get it to only ruin 90%. That's already better. <laughs> yep. that's, yeah, that's already an improvement. If over time you can get to half the negativity, that's great. It's not, it's not about becoming this enlightened being. It's just being a little bit better about getting through your days. And we all know people that have not done stuff because they've been afraid of what'll happen. I know that I've stopped myself at times from doing it. Thankfully, I'm not very risk averse, so I'll take huge risks, but I'm still afraid of what'll happen. And I know people who are also afraid of what'll happen, but then they won't act. I guess their fear is much bigger. And I think that um, anything you can do to lessen that is a good thing. 
I read this book called The Wisdom of Psychopaths once. <laughs> you know, it's not about the Ted Bundys of the world or anything being cool. It more just makes the case that there's psychopaths who are very successful in this world. And it points to a lot of very, uh, very famous people, like presidents, CEOs, uh, celebrities who have used their inability to feel fear as a huge advantage because it doesn't stop them the way that it stops normal people. And so they just act. They'll just, they want to achieve something. There's no fear associated. They just go for it. And so they're naturally adapted for success. Well, you know, as long as they have like the brains and the talent, of course, that lack of fear is an advantage. And so everybody else who has fear has to kind of learn to at least put it aside. So that that's what that book is about. It's actually was very, very helpful for me. My girlfriend at the time though was not, was not happy. She didn't know what it was about, but oh. um, <laughs> she thought it was a fucked up, a fucked up book for me to be reading. <laughs> How to become a serial killer with a all. <laughs> it's not about that. It seems like it would be. It makes the case also that like serial killers and, you know, people that hurt other people are incredibly rare. The majority of psychopaths are people who live in this world and hurt nobody and just don't have certain uh, mental, I guess, traits that most other people do. That's all. Being a psychopath does not mean you're evil or anything like that. But anyways, point being that freeing yourself from fear is, uh, is a huge advantage. And right now, because we don't face that many threats, we blow criticism out of proportion. <laughs> oh yeah yeah we turned that into a big threat which is crazy yeah just don't read the youtube comment section oh man <laughs> youtube is so bad dude it's so terrible the, it's just anonymous people just being terrible and being proud of being terrible want to know what's interesting about that to me is um so at urm and riff hard in our facebook communities we have rules about that you're not allowed to talk shit in our groups. It's just this culture that we're trying to build. Like when people come to our groups, it's an oasis from the rest of the internet and people do behave like people get kicked out or banned forever. If they, if they break these rules, cause they're that important. I mean, not, you know, if someone is brand new and, and they talk some shit, like we'll talk to them about it because maybe they don't know that this isn't like the rest of the internet, but repeat offenders, we just ban them. And what's interesting is I have noticed that people who are in the URM community who are fucking cool and treat everybody with respect and uh, act the way you should act. And on the outside, like in other groups, I've seen their comments and they are fucking savage motherfuckers. So I think that most people have the capability to act with decency, but because of the culture on the internet, people just give into their shitty base instincts and just act savage and terrible to each other, but they don't have to. I've seen those same exact people be totally cool to each other. So it's just kind of the fact that there's no real rules on the internet and maybe there shouldn't be, but that's how people get when they're just left without structure and just kill each other, basically. I'm the same way with all the buried alive stuff. If there's rude people, we just block them. 
And I've seen them bitch about being blocked on our stuff on like other people's social media. Yeah. Which is kind of weird. It's like, why are you here to just be rude? And then, and now you're offended that you can't be rude on our shit anymore. (laughs) I don't understand that thought process, but yeah, we're the same way. We want a safe place for people to be able to express ideas and, and stuff. And so we, we do the same thing. A lot of people don't like it, but I, I think it's the healthiest thing. Cause I don't, I've seen, I've seen our fans get like people attack our fans and all sorts of other stuff about music and everything else. Well, you get to decide what kind of culture you want surrounding what you put out there, right? That's one of the things that we are allowed to do on the internet is by having, we get to pick what exists on our pages and our sites and our communities. And we don't have to let it be a free for all. And if people want that, there's plenty of other places you can go. There's yeah. literally the rest of the internet where you can go be a dick. <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed the same thing. Like some people will be dicks. We'll kick them out. Then they'll get offended that we didn't let them do that. But man, that shit dies out. Like they'll have like an expression of rage about it for a day or two. And then that's that. Or you get the opposite side of the spectrum where the people that have committed the crime, let's say, even though it's not, you know, being a dick on the internet, but basically they'll be overly apologetic as well. Oh yeah, that too. Yeah. So obviously like people are capable of learning their mistakes and sometimes it just takes other people a little bit more time. I've had, I've definitely had people that have said something and then apologized more than a week later, just as an example, you know? That's good. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, most of the internet is a cesspool, basically. It is. And so people just, you know, when in Rome, that's how people act on the internet. And so when they get into a community where there are rules, they might not know that. And they might just be acting the way that they've been uh, allowed to act everywhere else. And so the moment that you block them or talk to them and they realize, they're like, oh, wait a second, I'm actually... uh, talking to another human on the other side of this screen. And uh, I would never talk to them like this in real life. I'm sorry. (laughs) They usually never do it again. Yeah. The key word there was community. Now, you know, in a actual community that's not on the internet, if someone does something wrong, they get sent to jail or get excluded from that community and have to prove themselves again in order to be re-let back in. Yes. And it's weird that on the internet there isn't really, other than, you know, in private groups or private communities, there's none of that. It's fucking anarchy. It is. It is literally (laughs) anarchy. It's like we've gone back to uh, 5,000 years. (laughs) Well, it just goes to show why it's important that somebody takes deliberate action to make things better. Because when nobody does that, people just act like people. And uh, people's natural behaviors aren't very pretty, basically. So someone someone has to take the initiative to basically set some rules. I feel weird saying this stuff because anti-authoritarianism, but some structure is good. People just act terrible without some sort of expectation, some sort of structure. And um, there's a reason for why these rules have evolved and stuck around. It's because they help us. If this kind of stuff wasn't helpful, our societies wouldn't have evolved the way that they did. It's just online people have to make the decision that they're going to enforce some rules and it sucks, but it's the truth. Yeah. And I think that even people that don't do that should 
potentially consider it. There's some really like toxic places to go for like if you want to end up running across some fucked up comments. But it's kind of a good marketing strategy too to keep things clean. And, you know, so when people are looking at or experiencing your engaging with your social media, they're not like they don't come across some rotten people and affiliate those rotten people with your brand too. Like, especially URM, if there's a lot of people saying horrible things on there, they there would probably be less engagement on it because you just don't want to be a part of that. You know, it's kind of like, I don't know. No, you're absolutely right. Actually, a lot of people have said that one of the things that they love about it is that they can ask a question that anywhere else online, they'll get just blasted for asking. <laughs> You know, like beginners, for instance, they'll post a question on some engineering group and just 50 people will just try to decimate them. And we don't allow that. What does DOS stand for? (laughs) Well, exactly. Questions like that. But people need to ask questions like that if they don't know. Yep. I'd be terrified. (laughs) I'd be terrified. I'd just be like, no, I'll just just not know that forever. That's fine. (laughs) Well, that's how a lot of people are. So they don't want to expose themselves to that. So... People do appreciate that we that we don't allow that stuff. It it's definitely made a difference. Um, you know, every once in a while, with a group and a community of that many thousands of people, shit will slip the cracks. But overall, like that stuff is not tolerated at all. That's good, and it's good that they apologize to it to like yeah, kind of get themselves back into all that knowledge. It's stupid to throw that away just to be an asshole. And they don't realize what they're losing out on until it's too late. Some people also just react in the moment. And that's one thing that I guess sometimes we have to think about as well. People say shit they don't mean when they're angry about something that is that little log that you didn't go past the river. (laughs) Yeah. You know, (laughs) like, yeah. So it's from two sides as well, isn't it? Maybe like... Well, yeah. But that's because there's usually no consequences on the exactly for your behavior. Yeah. And also as well, it's if you notice that, you know, say, you know, how people learn, for example, you can say the same set of words in a different order and someone will understand it. I think that that same thing happens when you can say the exact same thing and one way can make someone angry and one way doesn't. And it's the same words, you know? I don't know if you've, you guys have seen that. Well, yeah, how you say something is often more important than what you're saying. Yes. It's weird, but it's true. It's all in how you word things. And the mindset of what you're trying to accomplish with what you're saying, uh, you're trying to influence the person you're talking to into, you know, maybe or whatever it may be. So you want to kind of like think of that end result as you're like talking, as you're wording things to be able to get what you're trying to get out of it or whatever it may be in a way. But I know that using less words like you, like accusatory words, helps kind of get your point across without the other person's defenses going up. I guess I haven't had a lot of confrontations, mainly just being shit on <laughs> by people saying it's all reamped Guitar Pro and all that kind of bullshit, but I just don't see it anymore. Well, honestly, man, that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on was just because I felt like I think a lot of people know that you're the real deal. And then a lot of people haven't given you a fair shake. And so I just wanted to bring you on and just talk guitar and stuff because I think that people need to understand that just because 
someone's got a unique style doesn't mean it's not real. It, people should take that as inspirational. It just tells me that people can't process the fact that this is real music created by a human out of a human brain. I've had somebody comment witchcraft on like 20 videos in a row, just the word witchcraft. <laughs> and it's like, I guess all you can do is just take that as a compliment. But there's certain points where it's like, damn, man, I, I worked on this solo for like a year and now it's just like a sped up, now it's just sped up bullshit to, to most people. And it's like, God damn, I'd like work so hard on this thing <laughs> for somebody to just write it off as fake. And it's a shitty feeling. But at the end of the day, you just have to see that, okay, we're still growing, we're still gaining listeners. And now there's a little bit of controversy, which is kind of actually helping us a great deal, especially now that there's like, there's more raw clips and stuff like that, which I didn't really pay that much attention to because I was hope I wanted a really polished, high quality version of all my ideas. So they, they get a, across like properly, but yeah, it's not fun. It's not fun. Like playing guitar your whole life and then being called a fraud. <laughs> it's uh makes you just, I don't know, I guess it just makes you want to work harder. There's also one thing to think about with those raw clips that you've been putting up. One thing I've noticed, especially with Instagram, is people prefer watching videos that are just your phone with the audio from the phone because it makes them feel like they're there. And the automatic assumption when you've got a polished clip that is, you know, the automatic assumption is that it's fake because that's, you know, how the human mind works. So I'd say that raw clips are never a bad thing, really. It just means that people feel like they're actually there in that moment. Yeah, they love the authenticity. Yeah. Yeah, they, I didn't realize that back then because I just wanted the best looking and sounding version of everything. So I just like 4K, you know, made like the rolling shutter uh, in the manual settings to make it look just like that much more intense and just like went with it. But the rock clips are fun too. This little like tripod thing with the the iPhone, what is it, a iPhone 12 or whatever, it looks good. Looks and sounds pretty good. So I'll definitely like throw that in the in the content pile too. But it's something I, I wish I would have done back then uh, yeah. to help, you know, put out, extinguish some of that, the accusations because it's hard to go back. Like if you work on, like, let's say for Arm Strawberry, like you get, I don't know if you've heard that song, <laughs> Armstrong. <laughs> the video did really well. Kaylee has this crazy looking bass wobble because of the camera setting. Um, if I would have made some raw clips while I was working on that song at the time, that would have helped extinguish all of that. But six months or a year pass and I'm like four or five new songs in, I don't really know how to play that shit anymore because I'm always producing new things that I kind of... I made it a point to film a raw clip of pretty much everything I'm working on in the time I'm working on it so I don't have to like go back. But it sucks to feel like you have to prove shit because that's not really what music is. No, it's not. In fact, I, you know what? I, I started seeing this happening as early as 2013 with the calling out. I mean, I, I've even had some call outs on some of the videos I did for EMG TV. And the main one, I actually wow. left a mistake in the track on purpose, just so that it would show that it's authentic. I literally left a mistake in it right at the beginning. Those EMG videos are so tight. 
dude. They're not, like, though. You're playing. They're not. <laughs> but they're... they are, though. For, for a human being to be able to play that robotically tight is impressive. Yeah, those clips are great. Uh, <laughs> I think that, like, you know, no matter how good that you think that you did in that moment, a couple of years pass and you always think you could do better. I think it's the human condition that we're constantly thinking, oh God, what was I doing seven years ago? I could play that way better now. Or as, you know, after maybe the age of 35, I'll think, fuck, I can't play that anymore. My body doesn't want to play that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I just I just remember seeing, you know, people back, even back then saying it's sped up. Um, I've had it on those clips. Um, and it is a horrible feeling, but at the same time, it's almost a compliment as well. Especially if you, you know, if it's being played, it's like, oh, right, yeah, I must just be fucking great. <laughs> <laughs> I just must be awesome. It's like a compliment, but at the same time, it's like you were like probably 18 years into playing guitar or something at that point, maybe. And you're for it to be called sped up. It's just shitty. But as long as it's overall good, you know, it's it's definitely overall good. But like the Demonberry clip that came out, um, Whenever it came out, I don't even remember, like October of some year, uh, it got a lot of people that I even looked up to as guitar players, super, super butthurt about me and Buried Alive. And like people like uh, Chris Feener, I'm not even sure if you've heard of him, but I used to really respect him as a guitar player. And he just like just chewed me out for it being sped up, which it wasn't even sped up. So it's just kind of like, a really shitty mentality within the guitar community, or maybe it's just the music community in general, that uh, anything good, we must attack it, or anything that looks like it's sped up, we must attack it. And it's just like, what do we have to gain for doing that? You know, if it gets us maybe another 100 Instagram followers or something, there's no real value in that. It, it's just, I don't know. It's a hard thing. It's like, why would anybody do that? I, I guess I just don't understand why that people are accused of it so much because I don't see the benefit. I think it depends on the portrayal of what's being portrayed. So for example, say someone put a YouTube video up and said it was a one take playthrough when it's been comped from multiple takes, then that is not what it says. Whereas it's weird because then, you know, when people get albums and they really love albums most of the time, the public isn't aware that that album has probably been edited within an inch of its life. And what's on the record isn't technically played. Oh, even some albums, there's just studio musicians like the Beach Boys <laughs> yeah. don't play on any of their shit. There's been, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. So I, it's all about the mentality and the portrayal. I think the most important thing is the portrayal of it. I mean, if you say it's a playthrough and you haven't played it, I think that's probably different than presenting music. Like there's a difference between the music and then saying something that it actually isn't. I don't think it should matter. It shouldn't. One of the things that's positive about it is when new musicians and young musicians hear stuff, no matter how it was put together, uh, they just try to learn it. And that's how they keep on getting better. I know a lot of drummers who are unbelievable, who didn't know they were listening to edited drums. So they just started to play that way. Mike is a good example of that. Yeah. Alex Rudinger is a great example of that too. Yeah. Like they didn't know that they were listening to edit kicks. So they learned how to play 
the way that those edited tracks sounded. And now drummers are a lot better. I don't know. I don't necessarily think that it's a, it's a bad thing. Perception. Perception is a weird thing. I guess when it bothers me is when you see stuff that's like the fastest drummer on earth. I guess when someone portrays something as like, I'm going to show you this technical thing that's going to blow your mind. And then they show you something that's not real. It feels fraudish, but that's very, very different than, in my opinion, a playthrough or putting out music or whatever. Like who the hell cares how it was put together? I just think if someone is advertising something like, I can play blast beats at 300 BPM, but really they recorded it at uh, 150, 200 <laughs> and sped it up. So I don't care if they sped it up, but why put it out there that you played it at 300? Like why make that a, a thing? Like why advertise it that way? I don't think that they need to be hated or whatever, but it's just weird. Like I don't understand why someone would put that out there. Spend hours of their day commenting on it. I think that's probably the main thing, isn't it? Well, I, I wonder why people would make that video in the first place. Well, that also, but then why would also anyone care enough to make it their life's mission to insult someone at the same it's time? Weird. It is very strange. Maybe it's going back to our that gene we have that's tribal that we don't need anymore. Could be. I think a lot of musicians have the wrong mentality that this is some sort of like competition. And I also think that there's very little value in playing really fast too. Like you might sell a couple, you might get a couple of students playing really fast if that's your thing. But at the end of the day, you want to just make the best possible music that you can make and provide the best type of like experience for your audience and like speeding up videos and or arguing with, with people that these videos aren't sped up is kind of complicating things that don't matter. So I don't know. I have no problem. Like I, I even said it in a video. I don't care if you're slowing your shit down or speeding your shit up. It doesn't matter. Like you, you have the freedom to experiment with your music however you want. I do agree though, that if it's like, if you're advertising falsely as like some sort of crazy, yeah. like God at whatever you're doing, then yeah, people are going to be pissed about that. That's for sure. But with that, like, as far like our videos aren't sped up, but I never advertise them in any way. I just like have a caption and I have a clip, and people can take with take whatever they want from it. I've never claimed anything. I do say like Rawberry sometimes, you know, for as for a pun for like a raw clip. I'll just say Rawberry <laughs> or um, Raw Authentic. <laughs> I like that. Something like that. Just. <laughs> just so people can see, okay, this is just, this is like a shitty camera quality thing. I'm going to see what he sounds like when he's fucking around in his bedroom, which is literally a bedroom. <laughs> but <laughs> did actually a question for you on those raw clips. Have you found that a lot of them got more views? No, not really. I think they do. Okay. They, yeah. they do. All right. But the polished like end result, this is what I wanted it to look like always does better. Like when Tom Morello retweeted the blood orange clip, people attacked it as being sped up. And then I dropped the camera audio, which is totally raw and still yeah. sounds good. And a fraction of the views of it. I think it's good to have, I think it's good for your community to always have a raw clip, even if it's not like perfect, 
but it still it still hasn't produced the results that like a very thoughtful thing has done at least for me for me and Kaylee Tom Morello didn't comment on a raw clip no yeah it's like proving yourself to people that aren't really going to support you anyways in yes. a way and what i mean by that is like people that are drawn to the final product and the music don't really care if you can play it or not half the time they just like the way it sounds and they're having fun with it sometimes the raw clips reinforces that you can play it to them and they're like okay yeah this this is cool and it kind of gives them ammunition for like the trolls that are saying it isn't real but starting off with some raw stuff isn't good for anything other than like proving that you can play guitar or play play your instrument which is always cool to do and it's fun to share share what you're up to. It's not the way that you wanted to portray it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I just like, I've researched like cameras. I've used borrowlenses.com and I've like rented tons of different cameras and lenses to try to get the right look. And it's like, I feel like that's what I wanted it to look like. And it diminishes all that effort by just like putting a camera in front of me and playing it. But it's still cool. You're not doing it to prove that you play guitar. You're doing it to put out music and art. Yep, exactly. That's what I that's what I was doing this whole time. Then like people want camera quality clips and that just doesn't fulfill the the long-term goals. I still do it because it's cool and it's really really easy to do. It's just not my favorite version of what I'm making. Makes sense. I mean, when I checked out any of your stuff, I have watched the raw clips once or twice and been like, all right, cool. But that's not what I'll listen to over and over if I'm checking your stuff out. I'll listen to the actual clip. It's almost like those raw clips serve as a confirmation that people are listening to something authentic. But beyond that, who cares? Yeah, exactly. It's like, okay, he can he can play it. But I mean, I, I got other shit to do today. I'm just going to throw the track on a playlist and like go to the gym. That's what I want. I want people to to see like the final version, like it or or not. And if they like it, like find us on Spotify and, you know, find the track and stream the track. Or if you hate my voice, stream the instrumental version of the track and like go on with that. And if if they like the tabs, then I'm like sometimes people email me and look for tabs that we don't have on our site. And I'll just like email those over so they can kind of dissect what I'm doing on the guitar. But yeah, it's one of those things where you can't really monetize a raw clip. You can on YouTube, but you can monetize the effort put into your music to help sustain you to create more music. And if you spend all your time proving yourself as a guitar player, that really only like gets you so far. Eventually, you're like, oh, shit, I didn't release any music and I've got rent coming up. <laughs> and all I did was prove that I can play this part of the song. It's always good to have. That's a really good point. That's a really good point, actually. Can we talk a little bit about monetization? Because people are always wondering about that and wouldn't even know where to begin. Do you guys have like a standard number of things that you do per clip or per song? Roughly between 20 seconds to a minute. And all we do is just pick. I try to, well, not necessarily try to write, but I try to have three or four really interesting things on the on guitar in each track that we're releasing. If we're releasing like playthrough style version of it, that way it's like three or four chances to kind of like share little samples of what we sound like to social media. 
for, you know, like, like I said, take as many shots as you can. You want to give yourself a lot of shots in each track. That way you can help funnel people towards the rest of your music and discography or your discography and your merch and whatever you else you may have to offer for people. But yeah, uh, just give yourself as many options per one song and work on just one song, like one really good song. You can do a whole merch spread around one track if you want to. Like there's, I see bands do it for entire albums, but like there's a lot of value in just one really good single. And I think people appreciate it more because they don't have to sift through 11 or 12 songs to find that one that they just wanted to hear all along. So it kind of gives that thing an op- more of an opportunity. Um, but you can do merch, you can do tabs, you can do, um, you can do have your raw clips ready to go. Like we usually have some raw clips ready to go just in case like people are attacking it and not necessarily like if they don't attack it, we don't post it because we want it to be fresh. We want it to look crisp and, and sound good. But yeah, that's, that's pretty much all we do. I, I think Spotify is killer for bands. Like I see a lot of artists shitting all over Spotify, but they do a lot of things that iTunes isn't going to do for you. Google Play is not going to do for you. And like growing that monthly listener and that making sure you can get on release radar every time, that's huge. It's not something that guarantees success, but if you do it enough times, eventually you'll get lucky one of them. It's funny that musicians shit on Spotify and I definitely had my doubts with it at points during time but now i kind of think well played all those shows and i didn't get paid so if anything spotify should just be seen as a tool for advancing what it is you want to do um and a very good one at that now that you also see what it takes to run a business what a lot of people don't understand when they're criticizing spotify is they don't understand what goes into running an operation like that I still don't really fully understand, but I have more of a grasp on even just the costs of maintaining a system that big. It's insane. It's like, it's astronomical. Yeah. I just think a lot of people don't take that into consideration when they're criticizing something like Spotify. They're just coming from a place of ignorance about just how monumental of of a creation that is to have put together and to maintain and to evolve. Is uh, I mean, it's close to impossible. It almost never happens that something like that comes along. So when you guys do a merch spread, what goes into that? A lot of fun. <laughs> it's so fun coming up with violent fruit and just like all these crazy different scenarios. Like we got one uh, silence of the yams. Like <laughs> that was fun to come up with. And like all the concepts with that, um, the Punisher, it's just basically just different situations that just fruits just get totally dismembered pretty much. Um, and then figuring out what, how we want to do it. Um, like Kaylee got me into fashion and she showed me like all these really cool, like patterns and different styles that you can do on clothing as far as like dye sublimation goes. And so we just kind of got, you know, just started experimenting with mock-ups uh, sketches. We have lots of sketches of our stuff, like the camo jacket we released a couple months ago. Uh, that was an idea over a year in the making of getting that designed, finding the right factory to produce those for us with the right quality standards. There's, it's a full time. The whole merch 
portion is kind of a full-time job in and of itself, but it's really fun. It's, I mean, it's a creative, uh, fulfilling thing to do, but it's a lot of work finding the right artists, you know, making sure they're not going to bail on you. You've got to have, you know, three or four artists ready to go at any time because they just disappear. Those disappear for like six months. And if you only have one artist, then it kind of screws you over a little bit. So you always want to have a backup plan. And nothing against, I mean, it was just used to it. That's just kind of how life is. But yeah, so we figure out what we want to do. We find like our top five, top six things that we like as far as clothing ideas goes. We buy them or like have them pre-made. We sample them. We wear the shit out of them everywhere and make sure that it's good quality. And then we release it and do photo shoots, which is another fun thing. The reason I'm asking you about this is because, again, people ask about monetization a lot. And I think that, A, they don't know how much work goes into goes into it. B, the thing that I think is really interesting or just key is that it's like none of this would work if the music part wasn't already set. If there wasn't a direction to the music and an identifiable sound and, you know, that hadn't already been worked out, none of the other stuff like Spotify and the merch lines and everything else that you do, cutting things into clips and taking several shots, none of that would even be relevant. None of it at all. And you know what? We wouldn't have any haters because nobody would give a shit in the first place. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Yeah, like um, at the beginning, we used to do our own merch as well. The amount of time it takes just to get all the merch just into delivery bags. And I'm guessing it's just you and your wife that do it, right, Charles? We did it up until December of last year. So we would spend days doing merch, literally days. And we pissed off every post office in the area until we finally started having a guy like, I, I have the, the mailman's phone number. I can literally text him and be like, we have, I send him a picture of like our kitchen just full of boxes of stuff that has to go out. So he knows to bring the big truck. Um, so we could, but yeah, we would literally, we would do it all ourselves. Kaylee and I, we'd put stickers and wristbands with every order. So people get like some extra freebies and stuff and just, yeah, it's exhausting. And we only have a 600 square foot apartment. So the majority of our room was taken up by merchandise and music stuff. Is there anything else that you guys do monetization wise, like tab books or like, like how much stuff do you guys put out? Oh uh, yeah, we have a couple books. So there's Shred Hacks and then there's Shredding Light, which I think I mentioned you in Shredding Light as like a thank you. Uh, but so that's like, thank you. Not, I want to do audiobooks of that eventually because it's just so convenient for people to listen to an audiobook. But we got that, we got tabs. I'm thinking about doing something similar to Riff Hard, but it more so towards like the like Buried Alive, like how to just how to do some really weird shit that Buried Al that we do with Buried Alive, uh, like a membership thing and just getting like exclusive access to tabs or to riffs or like some extra like thing, kind of like Patreon in a way, but built into our website. Mm -hmm. But that's pretty much it. Like all distribute distribution through Spotify and iTunes. So that's like one income source. And then we have our merchandise, which is another income source. And then I teach. Um, I do a lot of guest features for vocals and guitar and probably missing some, but I think that's, that's the majority of it. That sounds like a lot of your time. 
Yeah, that's a lot of stuff. <laughs> it's all of my time. But we try to get away. You know, with the pandemic, we we couldn't really do much. But uh, this year, we've been able to get to like Hawaii and we went to Vegas. When I was talking to you, we got to go to Vegas for a bit. But we went there to do photo shoots. So we weren't there to really unwind. We showed up with like a luggage full of stuff that we were going to uh, do photo shoots with. And we did a shoot in Vegas and we did a shoot in Hawaii. Um, so we were still working the whole time, but I love it. She loves it. So it's not really work, but is, it is like a lifelong dedication to it is for sure. Just doing lessons and then trying to write music without dealing with anything else is a lot of time. So I applaud you in getting all of that done because that requires a very focused mindset. Thank you. That on top of adulting, all the normal like adult <laughs> stuff, it gets to be a lot sometimes, but it it's fun. And it, it feels good to like get an album ready to go and and release it. You know, you, there's some there's always going to be fear, you know. For me, I, I definitely have a lot of fear when I do it, but it's fun to see things that come from nothing. It's just cool. Cool to see what you make. I love the fact that people can do it now on their own like this. Me too. With the label, like with E1, I got, we sold 10,000 records of that album that we recorded with you before the, before I left that band. And I got a hundred dollar check from ASCAP, like in 2017 for, for that album. <laughs> <laughs> That's the income I saw from that whole thing. Interesting. Well, I know the feeling very, very well. I'm not going to say any more on that subject. Otherwise, I'm going to start screaming. Oh, yeah. It, let that log go down the river, buddy. It's just... <laughs> oh, no, no. That's that's the, that's the clog lock. That's like the big oak <laughs> yeah. tree that was standing for a thousand years that isn't going anywhere. <laughs> that's what that's what the song Legendary was about, is basically me like slaughtering an entire record label. <laughs> but I would never do it. I would just write a song about it. <laughs> but you figured out how to basically become your own label. Yep, absolutely, 100%. You have to learn a lot of different things, but you have full control. You're not going to bail on yourself and it, it leaves you 100% responsible, which means you're going to get the shit done because if it doesn't, or if you don't, it doesn't get done. So it puts the ball in your hands. And you don't have anyone to blame, but you, like you can't, mm -hmm. you can't say it was a shitty deal or they're not prioritizing us or they should have done more of this or didn't do any of that. It's on you, yep. which is great. 100%. It's kind of the same with a label. It's all on you, except you're giving most of your money to someone else. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Oh, shit. Take a deep breath. Just <laughs> No, no, no. I'm fine. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just saying that like, like a label can't do the work that they need to unless you're putting the work in, which, which is what, you know, doing the videos, doing, making sure that all your merch is ready so that when the label do, you know, promote your record, you've got the merch to sell so you can make some money. And yeah, I mean, it's still this, it's still the same amount of work in retrospect, just that you're giving yeah. someone else 80% of your income. It's funny because the job that they do is more or less what TuneCore does for $9.99 a song, but they get <laughs> all of the money. So it's like, okay, what, what do we, what's the benefit? And that's what that's what makes me sad when I see buddies or friends get signed to labels recently. It's like, man, I hope they changed for you because I, I don't see how you can't do all of this easily on your own and just totally thrive. Can or, or will. That's a big difference. Yeah, that's very true. If you're the type of person who will do this, you should. 
I don't think everybody wants to do that. I think some people are cooler with making less money and not having to take on all that stuff. I mean, of course, they'd like to make more, but they don't want to make more enough to actually do all this kind of work and learn how to do all this stuff. So I don't think that everybody wants that, first of all. And then I also think that not everybody's capable. And it's not like, I mean, that they're stupid or anything like that. It's more just that they might not have the mental skill set for it. Uh, maybe they're really, really great at just the music part. That's And that's, you know, maybe they don't have a partner. Like you and Kaylee work great together. Maybe they don't have uh, the right partner so that they can have that kind of partnership and can get that kind of work done. I don't know. I don't think it's all just anyone could just do it and thrive. I think um, definitely if you can, you're capable, you have the right setup to do it, you should. It's not for everyone, I think. You really have to be willing to give up a lot. Yeah, exactly. Everything pretty much. Yeah. And if you are, that's great. I mean, we know several musicians who have done it all themselves, who are friends of ours who have been on the podcast. And it's a, it's a very specific type of person who's willing to take that all on. It's definitely not everyone. It like bears no um, distinction in the quality of musician or quality of person. Just some people are not willing to do all that or they don't have the entrepreneurial drive or whatever it is. It might not even be that. They might have the drive to do it and not have the understanding. That's the other thing as well. You know, some people can get through the mistake period, which obviously inevitably is going to happen where you do something wrong. Some people cave in and give up in that moment. Well, then they don't have the drive. That's very, well, They maybe they did have the drive and then there was too many obstacles. Well, that's not strong enough then. <laughs> if they're capable of doing it and don't do it, then they don't have the drive. Like, cause yeah. everybody encounters shitty obstacles. That's kind of universal. Everybody's going to get the shit kicked out of them by this industry. Anyone who has survived in the industry for any amount of time has gotten the shit kicked out of them several times. Or oh, they got very lucky. <laughs> but you don't survive through luck though. You might get opportunities through luck, but you're not going to survive through luck. No way. I think some people get in through luck, but staying in, I don't know about that. I don't believe that if someone gives up that they had the drive because that's kind of what determines it is not giving up. Makes sense. Yeah. And I also think that nobody starts with the understanding either. Everybody had to learn it along the way. Some people are more inclined than others. That's true. Yep. That ability to keep coming back. Have you ever read or listened to the book Think and Grow Rich by chance? Yeah. Long time ago. Classic. The chapter on persistence, it's like chapter nine. I feel like if anybody listens to anything, it should be like that to get a fire under their ass to do something because it's just all in persistence. Like if you don't make it, the only reason why is because, like you said, drive or persistence. You didn't put forth effort for a long enough period of time. And that is the only reason why things don't happen for people. People can say, I got screwed. I didn't get the opportunity. But then if the next thing you did was give up, then it's on you. Every single person I know just about has gotten screwed, has had things fall apart, has just had bad luck, has had, I don't know, has had things in their way. If they had quit at that moment, 
where like one thing fell apart, like say they had quit when they had that bad label experience or say they quit when their first band fell apart. They could have said that they weren't lucky enough or whatever, but the fact is that they stuck it out and then ended up in a much better situation. That's kind of universal. So if it didn't happen, there's a few things. A, you weren't good enough. B, you didn't stick it out long enough. C, I don't know. What's C? No good luck? I mean, well, maybe a personal family loss. Yeah, but everybody has those. Yeah, that's very true. It's, There's not a single family on earth that doesn't have loss. It's recovering. It's the right mentality. And just like, again, going back to therapy, uh, when my brother passed away in September, it was really hard for me for a while. And he said that you just have to still go about your daily tasks. You just have to kind of do it sad, do so sadly. He just like... Either way, you can still do the same thing. You just have to do it carrying those emotions and like grieving a little bit. And eventually it goes, gets, gets better. But that's the thing, like still staying in action. It's, it's going to sound insensitive, but like the world doesn't care about what we go through. No, that's true. Spotify doesn't care. Merch doesn't care. Our careers don't care. All that matters with those is our output. And we can make the decision to slow down because of things in our life. And that's perfectly fine. Doesn't mean that someone's a better or worse person, but it's, it still comes down to that. Like if something happened and someone decides to step out or get on the sidelines for X amount of time, well then their progress will reflect that decision. And yep. it doesn't matter how insensitive or harsh it is. That's just the way the universe works. But again, I don't think that it means that someone's a better or worse person for it. There is going to be somebody that buys a t-shirt from you because they feel bad for you, but that doesn't want to, that can't be something that you want to like bank on. No. <laughs> Being so pathetic that like that's how you thrive. But yeah, you're right. It's it, however much work you're willing to put in is what you get, you get out of it. And going back to that, it's just persistence and drive. There's another thing in Think and Grow Rich these um, miners were looking for gold and they had all this equipment and eventually they just gave up and they sold the equipment to somebody like a nearby place. And the person took, went back to the same dig site and went another three feet and found just a massive amount of wealth there. So like they were three feet away from literally hitting it and they gave up. So you never really know how close you were to like strike getting lucky if you stop. And it's almost kind of, you almost want to get like addicted to what you're doing in a way where you're like leading yourself on to thinking that there's going to be some sort of, you know, progress like there waiting for you. Well, yeah, because otherwise, how are you going to keep going? Because the thing is, when life does punch you in the face, it can be pretty overwhelming. You're going to, you have to have something in you that overcomes that, which is stronger than the feeling of getting the shit kicked out of you by life. Um, something in you has to propel you or push you. And so whether it's you believe that there's something better at the end of the tunnel or whatever it is, that still has to be there, I think. It's momentum versus inertia, I guess, with negativity being inertia. Brown, what do you think? I agree with everything. Thank God. Yeah, I think that... Just kidding. <laughs> uh, I'm going to... What? Because I'm not explaining. All right, I'll explain a little bit more. Yeah, I think that 
ultimately no one cares about anything that involves your life apart from the end result as insensitive as that is i mean people will obviously be um apologetic sorry but no one really understands the human emotions all they want is to listen to your output into the world that they the part that they enjoy ultimately you do that you get the occasional person that obviously is overly compassionate i guess is probably the right word um but yeah if you decide to slow down then the world's gonna go past you world keeps going yep. yeah the world you fall keeps into going. obscurity exactly yeah and, and that's another thing like you can't release music fast enough these days you literally can't no. like i we released we're we're going on like maybe one single a month and like a week after the song was just out, people are looking for new music. And that's always a good sign. But that just shows like, it doesn't matter what you just did. It's It matters like what you're about to do. And yes. So you could have 10, 10 albums out and, you know, give it five minutes. No one gives a shit. You got to always be producing. And, and there... It's actually why album... <laughs> it's why albums don't really matter anymore, in my opinion. Like... It's actually probably better to release, to write an album and then over the course of a year and a half, release those songs individually with playthroughs, you know, video, merch lines. Because that's actually going to be way more productive in that year and a half than it would be if you released an album in one go. Because the next week, everyone wants your next album. Yeah, it doesn't take long for that album to be old news. It's like less than the time length of the album, it's old news. You could pretty much like release a 50, 50 minute long thing and in a half an hour, people are looking for the next music. And you're like, you didn't even listen to this. But yeah, that's singles is a brilliant way to do it. And again, going back to Spotify, your release radar, if you upload your track two weeks before, you can get it submitted into your release radar so your followers see it and also for possible playlist positions. So Blood Orange was put on some sort of playlist for metal, which helped us gain a decent amount. I think we gained like 25% of our entire monthly listeners with just that one song. And, you know, we could have done a whole entire album and not have gotten the same results easily. So it's just like singles. And that helps songs distinguish more differently from one another too. Sometimes albums, like it almost sounds too similar. So it helps you kind of like experiment a little bit more with each thing, yeah. give it its own uniqueness. It's all all benefits. And then you're not clogged up with with ideas as much either. And if you're not on a, if you're on a label, I don't know what it's like to be on a label now, but we had to it was like months before new music was even surfacing by the time it's completed. Yeah, I mean the, you need the three months minimum time once the masters are handed in so that the label can do their job of making sure everyone's informed, making sure that the print's done. And then because vinyl's so popular now, I think the wait list is over six months to get a vinyl press. Wow, yeah, vinyl takes forever. It's just and it's so that's popular. months you're not making money. Yeah. Are cassette tapes popular? Uh, I've got one. You got one? I have a <laughs> Jock Jams cassette tape. That was... <laughs> I don't know if you, you, you remember might. Jock Jams. <laughs> you can probably see it from here, actually. I've got the Meshuga non-tape, the one with sickening on it and uh, humilitive. Yeah, 1994. That's awesome. I have a Michael Jackson tape. I have Bad. And oh, I've yeah. got uh, Kids Bop and Veggie Tales. 
So I think we just answered our own question, didn't we? Cassettes are not popular. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, probably not popular. I always thought that, you know, because vinyls are just like crazy popular now. I wonder if maybe someday those will pick up with it. I'm going to release our next video on Betamax. <laughs> but the, it's like three months without income because you're waiting for the label to get their shit together. And then however, like when we release, like, for example, if you release a song in January through whatever distributor, you might not see royalties for it till like March or even April. So it's like three months before pre-orders start. And then... You know, it's just like kind of unsustainable almost to do albums in that way at this point, unless you have lots of other income sources. And then with labels, you don't get a royalty. You only get a royalty check twice a year. I didn't even know you got that that many royalty checks. <laughs> I got I got one. I'd say all in, I'm like negative probably 10 grand on the whole record label experience and touring experience. But it's a different world when you're independent. But you have to you have to do way more stuff. But it's it's fun. Singles are good, though. Are you guys releasing any new music soon? Uh, we just released a song about two weeks ago, actually. The next one I can't talk about yet. Okay. Al's heard a little demo. It's pretty sick. Nah, it's cool. not. <laughs> All right, it fucking sucks. <laughs> there we go. That's what I just wanted to hear you hit, say those words. That's the reaction. <laughs> yes. It's giving me fuel for accepting the comments that are going to happen. <laughs> Monuments were better before. Like, no, it, it really is sick. It's pretty great. Not having a band to worry about is also pretty awesome. Don't you think? Like, just the fact that it's you and her. I love it. Yeah, that is great. I don't even really use, like, Superior Drummer that much anymore because I'm not really writing to a drummer because, like, it's like, what drummer? So I'm just playing with more EDM samples. I took like a Splice Travis Barker sample and I just manipulated that for Figsaw. And it's just fun to not have anybody to worry about or to have to deal with. I'm not saying all people suck to deal with, but... All people suck to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks for saying it. Somebody had to say it. It's kind of like, you know, when you move into a new apartment or a new house... And I don't know about you guys, but the first thing that sort of goes through my entire body of worry is, is my neighbor going to suck? And it's weird that that's always the first mindset <laughs> of moving. It's like, is my neighbor going to be shit? I'm usually worried about spiders, but then, then it's neighbors. <laughs> In that order. Yep. Spiders. No spider. Okay, cool. And then noisy neighbors. The thing about being in a band that always freaked me out was that my entire future was relying on these people. You still have to rely on a certain amount of people though, don't you? Yeah, but at least in my band situation, the the thought of relying on people for my future <laughs> was uh was super stressful. I still do need to rely on people, but uh it's a much more secure type of partnership, I guess. I think also it's just, um, as you know, Charles has said about touring, that he's $10,000 in the hole. I think that the problem with doing it when it's a band is that it's all based on luck. Yeah, and lack of money really causes a lot of problems, where I think a lot of relationships would work themselves out if there was money. Yes. Being in a constant state of, uh, of poverty basically will poison lots of relationships. So I guess part of why current relationships are, are working for me is because there's more money to go around. People aren't fighting, you know, for scraps the way that 
it was in the band days. There's also, if someone is a really good musician, that doesn't mean that they're a really good partner to work with. And you ha- you can't make decisions just based on business in a band. You have to make decisions based on art. And so you could really, really love working with someone artistically, but then feel total fear about relying on them business-wise. Whereas <laughs> in business, if I can't rely on them business-wise, we're not working together. There's no art to save it, basically. Like that, that doesn't even come into the equation. Oh, he's a really, really great musician. He writes the coolest shit ever. He's a fucking degenerate scumbag piece of shit, but God, he's so goddamn good. Like without him, (laughs) this doesn't work. Like that doesn't enter into the equation. Yeah. Either way, eventually that kind of character is going to bite you in the ass. Makes sense. Yes. Exactly. Being in a band, that's one of the reasons I don't like it is because, yes, that kind of character is going to bite you in the ass. But then at the same time, how do you stop working with them if they're they're amazing, right? It's almost no win when it comes to that. That's what I was conflicted about when I left the band that I was in because there's a lot of fear there. Because you're like, how do I figure out how to do all these aspects without having a full band because it's weird because I've you know played in bands most of my life and toured and just felt like that was the the right route but it really wasn't and it's hard to convince yourself otherwise when you don't see a different perspective of it but getting away from people like that like manipulative people that are just like horrible like business wise is like sooner than later, I, I would have done it like years prior, but then I wouldn't have been able to meet you. But it's like really important to get the right circle around you, the right the right kind of people. Even if they're not like the most talented, you can develop that, and you can you can still get a lot of help if you need it. Yeah. Who you surround yourself with is a big determining factor in where you're going to end up. It's very closely linked. Whether or not someone has the right kind of, uh, I guess, qualities to them, in my opinion, is a lot more important to me than their skill level because skills can be taught. But if they're the wrong kind of person, it almost doesn't matter what the skill level is because it's going to tank things eventually. Also notice that when I'm around the wrong kind of people, I start to become a worse person. Like my bad traits start to uh, come out. Whereas when I'm in the right kind of partnerships and relationships, my better sides come out. Like I think that we're better around better people. Yeah. It's just being good to yourself and getting the right surroundings. And it's hard to cut people off like that, but it's so important for growth. And I don't know, like, You've made leaps and bounds the last since the last time, you know, we hung out. And a lot of that was your drive, but I know a lot of that was surrounding yourself with the right people too. And it's cool to do that for yourself, you know, to like um cuz you deserve that. You know, you're a good person and you deserve to be around like-minded individuals to to help you all grow. And I know it's not I know it's probably benefited multiple people 100% at the same time. And you've helped like an entire communities of, you know, aspiring engineers and musicians. 
and you turned me on to a lot of really good guitar players and guitar picks too. Try to help where I can. It all turned around when I got around the right people. It like turned around very quickly, actually, once I got around the right people. Um, whereas working with the wrong people felt like swimming upstream with boots on, basically. It's crazy what a difference it makes. And I feel bad for people who are not able to find the right people, but um, I would urge, you know, if someone's in a band and their band members suck, I know a lot of people listening to this are in that kind of situation where they, they're the ones that work the hardest in their band. You know, they're always doing everything, but their band members aren't doing shit. Or there's like two band members that totally fucking suck uh, that are just holding them back. I really, really urge everybody listening who's in that situation to do what you know is right, which is uh, generally move on. Because things always do get better when you cut the cancer, basically. Yep, 100%. And uh, to add to that, even if you do find some success with the your current group, they could still like manip- like sabotage you in some sort of way down the road. Intentionally or not. Yeah, intentionally or not. Not to like try to scare anybody, but if you're thinking about doing it on your own, your best chance is to start sooner than later. That's how I feel about my shitty experiences is, uh, A, they taught me the way things work. They taught me what I don't want, and then they gave me the fuel to make things work in a good situation. That's a great outlook. But I do agree with you. If someone, if you know that you need to get away from a certain group of people, the sooner the better. I don't think anybody ever says, I wish I had waited longer to uh, quit that band or break up with that girl. What they always say is, I wish I had done it sooner. Yep. It's like saying, I wish I drank last night. It's like, no, you're always wishing you didn't drink the night before. Usually (laughs) it's just like poison. It's just poison, poisonous people. And some people don't realize that they're involved and it's sad to see, but doing that for yourself is crucial. And I don't know. It's, it's a, there's a lot of that in bands. Some people want that though. Some people want to be in a band where like, if anything goes wrong, they can just pawn it off on the other members and just blame them for everything the rest of their lives. But for the people that really, really, really want to like do that, wake up and do this for a living, it's like, get out and start learning these skills. <laughs> like I had worked with some really great drummers, like Cam Murray, when he was there, he's a great drummer. And it was cool to just like pick up on what he was doing as a guitar player to a drummer for when I would write drums and start programming out my own ideas. It's like prime example of some, some badass drumming right there. It's almost like I took drumming lessons, but I really just jammed with a great drummer and that helped me with my music. Something to be said about finding good, good musicians and jamming with them, even though you're like a solo artist. Well, you always learn from the people you work with. And I think the time period we live in, if you do learn those skills that you're talking about, you have far more of a chance of at least making a living at this than really any other time in history. So it's like the the world is set up for you to do all right with. May as well take advantage. Yep. You got to spend your money on a good computer. This Focusrite, the Scarlett 8i6 sounds really, really good in my opinion. And I just like tried to train my ears so I didn't have to spend a lot of money on paying an engineer to do stuff. And with the money you save, not having to pay for for that and doing it yourself, you have a little bit more 
uh, cash flow to, you know, market yourself better uh, or to get a nicer camera or to rent a nicer camera and to just really see what you can do without a lot of resources. You just kind of make your own resources. You have everything. We could have we could have a 4K camera. We could have like three of the same camera show up today with all the lighting and we could film, literally film a music video for a fraction of the cost, edit it all up in Final Cut and we wouldn't have to wait for any sort of release date. And it's like sky's the limit. Like I said, as hard as you're willing to work, as many songs as you're willing to, to drop, you could do one song a week if you wanted to. I don't know how good those songs would be. I don't know how good my music would be if I did like a song a week, but it's possible. Nothing holding anybody back. I agree. And with that, I think this is a good place to end the podcast on that note. Charles, I want to thank you for taking the time to hang out. It's been awesome getting to catch back up. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on on Riff Hard. It's great to meet you, John. I'm a fan. Yep. Great to meet you. It's actually finally great to put the mind to the music. Absolutely. I've I've only seen you play a whole lot of guitar and I've heard your music and it's really sick. Brown, you got to understand he's humble, but seriously, among all the guitar players I've recorded and you know, I've recorded a lot of bad motherfuckers. That guy is in like the top three or four as far as ability goes. He's got an insane amount of ability, which is one of the reasons I wanted to bring him on here. It's just because he's a great guitar player and we talk to great guitar players, but feel like uh, he gets a lot of unnecessary shit because people don't realize that he actually can do what he puts out there. But uh, I've witnessed it. And a long time ago, too. Like, he was doing this shit eight years ago when I recorded him. The guy is insane good. Uh, it's freakish, actually, how good he is. I mean, you just have to listen to his music to understand. The guy is very technically gifted. You just look at any video that he's released through Buried Alive. And every single time he's released something, I have listened to it and think, he's fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah, you know how some people when they sit down to play or they take on an instrument or they try to learn something, whether technical or conceptual, their brain just, and their hands just pick it up faster than people normally would. You kind of like in a uh, gym class or, you know, whatever you would call it in the UK. I don't know. <laughs> we call it physical education. Okay. Physical education. There's always the kid in every class that just ran faster than everybody. He didn't try to run faster than everybody. You know, 10 year olds aren't, uh, they're not cross training, but there'd always be the kid that was just freakish. I feel like that's kind of what he is as a musician. He's just super gifted. And then you add onto that, this insane work ethic. There you have it. Yeah. The, Main thing that I always noticed about Charles, obviously I've not heard too much of his playing, just what he's put out through music, but he has his own sound. It sounds like him. Sure does. Yes, Danzer influences, even he says it, and you can hear a bit of Danzer in it, but tonally, it's totally different. It sounds like Charles, and it's really wacky and weird and pretty awesome, to be honest. I've been blown away more than a handful of times by looking at what he's been doing. Yeah, it's out there. I love how unapologetic it is. <laughs> it's like art. It's art in its truest form. Gives no fucks. 
does exactly what he wants. People love it or hate it. He does what he wants. And, uh, and you got to admire anyone who's capable of pulling that off and making a living off of it, especially in something as fucking weird as buried alive. Yeah. It's funny. I watched a, um, I watched a Deftones playthrough a few days ago. It was, what song was it again? I can't remember what song. It was one of the first playthroughs I think I've seen Steph Carpenter do. Mm-hmm. But in the playthrough, he's wearing a Buried Alive shirt. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, and then obviously Tom Morello's posted about it. You can definitely hear some form of influence from Tom Morello in there. Probably maybe not, but it's kind of along the same sort of lines as what Tom was doing with his solos. Absolutely. Yeah, it's just cool that, like, as you say, it's a very niche project, but all of these massive artists have come to appreciate it probably because of just how niche it is. How niche and, but badass. It's really, really good. It's not just weird music. It has a theme. It sticks to the theme. Like there's an artistic direction to it. Like sometimes weird bands are just weird. Yes. Like for the sake of being weird. Um, Every once in a while you get a band where it's a very... It's a very defined artistic vision, like uh, Mr. Bungle or Frank Zappa had that or whatever. I think what's the reason that people are recognizing Charles is because it's not just a flurry of random shit. It's got a very distinct vision to it. Yeah, I can't argue with you there. And you've recorded him. So if you're saying that he's that good, I can hear he's that good. But I can imagine that he spends a lot of time to get that good as well. Absolutely. Well, you know, I'll tell you when someone sucks. I may not say, uh, I may, I will never say, especially in public, I will never say that someone is amazing that isn't amazing. I just won't talk about their skill level. I won't, I'm not going to bash anybody on here, but I'm not going to sit here and tell you how good they are if they're not. And you know that behind closed doors, I'll tell you exactly what level they're at. (laughs) I wouldn't just be making it up. But yeah, so a few things. First of all, that work ethic is insane. A lot of people, and I brought this up, but a lot of people ask about how do you get motivated? How do you find the time of the day? How do you this? How do you that? And just listen to someone like Charles. He just makes the time figures it out. He doesn't do anything else. Like that's how much he is into it. Yeah. And you have to admire that. I mean, you know what it's like when you don't have a day off in months, you feel like you're going to go a bit crazy, right? But if you really love something enough, then you just keep going because it's almost, you don't know what else to do with your day because you're that into it. It's just like any other day. Like if you were, you know, going to make what dinner you were going to have that evening at 6 PM, or you know that you're going to have a coffee at this time in the morning. It's kind of the same thing. Absolutely. It's just that you need to do that in order for your day to be fulfilled. And I admire that. And say that you're not in a position like his, like say you have a day job, say you only have an hour five times a week or two hours a night or whatever, you can still make shit happen as long as you do something along the lines of what he does, which is uh, there's several things he's trying to Dude, you know, there's his guitar playing, there's his singing, there's his mixing, there's his writing. And like he said, he just goes on rotation of all those four things, nonstop rotation. The moment that he's done with one, onto the next. When he starts to burn out on the next, onto the next. And just this continuous rotation. I guarantee anybody that even if they're putting in one or two hours a night, if they were to put all the things they're trying to do on a rotation, 
and just keep that rotation going for years. Mind you, last time I worked with Charles was eight years ago. You know, he's been going ever since. Um, I guarantee you that if you were to take the time you do have, forget about the time you don't have, take the time you do have, put what you want to do on a rotation and then just don't stop. Years will go by and uh, you'll be amazed how far you've come. Amazed. Yeah. You only, I mean, you know, as well as I do, Al, from, uh, well, probably a lot more than I do actually, because you, uh, you actually work out and I sit in my chair. Um, <laughs> the, in theory, in order to maintain a, a, you know, a good weight, you only need to spend 10 to 20 minutes, four times a week where you have your heart rate pumping in order to maintain a healthy body weight. As long as your it diet you- is good. As long as your diet's good, that maintains it. And it's the the exact same thing when it comes to guitar. If you don't play it, you're going to lose it. If you spend 10, 20, 30 minutes a day playing your guitar, you're either going to maintain, depending on what your focus is, or you're going to get a shit ton better by focusing on the right things. Absolutely. Now, one of the things that he discussed that I think is super important that I know that you're a huge proponent of and was the game changer for me as a guitar player is recording himself. Yep. It's by far the biggest thing or the biggest attribute to seeing what's wrong with your playing. If you, while you're sat there playing, you're not really concentrating on what the complete sound of it is. And in order to do that, you have to record yourself. And we have the technology now to be able to do that, which means that's why guitar players are getting better from 20 years ago, because... They can actually analyze their playing on a more molecular level. Absolutely. And dude, I started recording myself when all I had was a cassette four track. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Even then I would record practices, listen back and try to get better, try to get tighter. Yeah. As soon as I got a computer, then it was just uh, to the moon. But, uh, but still, (laughs) even with the cheapest, shittiest uh, recording medium, it still helped me tremendously because you don't know you don't know what you sound like while you're playing. No. It's like, you know, if you go back and try and say the sentence you just said in the exact same rhythm, in the exact same tone, you probably wouldn't be able to do it. No. (laughs) So you literally don't know what you've just done. And having the ability to go back and actually see, oh, I fucked up that bit or I played that bit great. It's it's such a good way to really hone in on what the problems are with your playing is. Spot patterns too. Like after you do it for a while, start to notice, God, I'm always rushing when I do this kind of technique or whenever I go to this kind of technique, I just flub the first few notes every time. Or when I'm switching strings on these kinds of riffs, when I go to, when I switch from this string to that string, it takes me a little bit to get into it. Oh, like you just start to notice these things that sometimes I think there are things that you notice while you're playing, but you just don't, you notice, but they don't really like set off an alarm bell. But when you hear it recorded back, you can't ignore it. Yeah. It's like uh, when it's in the playing, you just think, ah, oh, no one heard that. That's probably just me. But then when you actually listen back, that sound is louder than anything else, <laughs> like a ringing out string or a noise from the guitar, or like you said, you've just rushed this one bit and maybe no one else noticed but you, but more than likely everyone's noticed. Well, if you plan on using guitar as a means to play in a band or 
record them so that other people can hear them, people will notice. Oh, yeah, for sure. Or put videos on the internet. Yeah. Oh, you can't get away from it now with a video on the internet. Your shit yeah, gig is up notice. there. <laughs> yeah. So people listening, if you don't know exactly how to do what we're saying, like say you know how to record to a degree, but you're not exactly sure of how to do what we're saying, like how to record yourself in order to uh, get better. Like let's take down picking Jim on riffhard.com, for instance. What would be a good way to utilize down picking Jim while recording yourself in order to get the most out of it? So I would pick an exercise from the down picking gym, depending on what uh, skill set you wanted to focus on, whether it was tapping, string skipping, hammer-ons, pull-offs, something like that. Pick one and decide, okay, I want to see how well I've actually learned this and if I can do it well. Then take that exercise and start recording a DI signal into your DAW and, and zoom right in on this audio file that you've just recorded and just see how close you are to the metronome. 99% of guitar players, I would say, rush quite a lot of the time. And the understanding of seeing visually where you are gives you an indication of what you actually need to do. But it goes a lot deeper than that as well, because when you look at the DI, it also tells you the information of how consistent you are as well. Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, that note's slightly quieter than that next note. Next time I go to that, I want to hit that slightly harder or... I want this note to accent. So if I hit that note slightly harder, then it will give the accent that I want it to. There's, there's so much information that you can get from just looking at your DI that you've just recorded that it really helps you build on what you've spent years building already. It just really refines those extra points to make you a better guitar player. You know, for instance, you can listen back and not even looking, just listen and yeah. ask yourself, does that sound the way I want it to sound. And I don't mean in a amp setting sort of way. I mean, does the performance sound like the thing I had envisioned? Do those palm mutes sound right? Are the right amount of uh, notes ringing through the chord I'm playing? Like whatever, whatever it is, does it sound the way that you had envisioned? No? Okay. Well then maybe try playing it a slightly different way. Adjust where your, uh, you know, where your mute is, adjust the angle that the pick is hitting the strings at, just adjust things and then pay attention. Does that sound more or less like what I was going for in my head? And just keep going. And uh, if you do that enough, eventually you'll land at what you had envisioned. And then occasionally though, there are people that don't necessarily know what they're listening out for as well. It's something that you have to train. So all of these little nuggets of information that me and Al are giving is like kind of gold. If you don't know what you're looking for, you just, you can visually see if it's right as well, which is perfect, really. Something that we didn't have when we were growing up. No. Should utilize these tools that you've got to basically extract every little bit of juice, everything you possibly can out of them, in my opinion. It's amazing what you can do with, uh, with the technology that's out there. Now, you know, what's funny about it is uh, there's people who talk so much shit about it, about modern technology and how it's ruining music, but I see it as something that is the most amazing learning tool that's really ever been invented. I totally agree. I guess it's down, those 
people are seeing it from the wrong angle. If you use a recording program to press Q, then you're completely lying to yourself. But if you use the information that's been given in front of you, it really gives you all the information you need to improve on your playing. Awesome. Well, Brown, it's been a pleasure, as always. <laughs> yeah, as always. Yeah, I'll see you next week then, yeah? Yep. And uh, riffhard.com, everybody. Go get better at guitar. Join the revolution. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week.